Graveyard shit, and I am your host, Donnie Rings. Unfortunately, we are without one of our members tonight. We learned uh, some hopefully decent news. Um, Will's fa- uncle was admitted to a hospital just hours before the recording, so uh, let's hope for the best from him. And uh, other than that, uh, just wish him speedy prayers and a speedy recovery. But um, that explains why he is not here. Yeah. But we do have my other main co-host with us. We do have Glenn. What up? <laughs> and we are also joined tonight by two very special Templars. Let's give a welcome to Rob. What's up? And Alfonso. What's up? Uh, <laughs> greetings, everyone. So, um, if you haven't already figured out by now, we are traveling to the town of Brzano, Portugal, to discuss a quartet of Spanish zombie films known collectively as the Blind Dead Quadrilogy. <laughs> so, if uh, we have any objections, let's uh, get going with the uh, films for the evening. Uh, first on the docket is 1971's Tombs of the Blind Dead. Blind terror strikes fear into the hearts of innocent people. The morgue receives the victims of the blind dead. There's no escape from the blind dead. 
They are the Templars, devil worshippers, a death cult that has risen from their thousand-year-old tombs to begin a horrible reign of terror. young girl is trapped by the evil forces. No one is safe from their curse. They're coming! sound in the ancient cemetery brings the evil creatures from their tombs. The Templars perform their sadistic rites. A virgin is sacrificed in a blood ritual. death for those who can't escape the blind death. Coming soon from your cemetery. Um, I forgot. Who's got the uh, plot synopsis? Uh, I can find it. <laughs> I have it. I, I mean, I have it Crap. on IMDb at the second. Oh yeah. Well, if you've got it, yeah, go ahead. All right. Seriously. From uh, IMDb, and then we can kind of jump off of this, I guess, and make it a little bit better. But uh, in the 13th century, there existed a legion of evil knights known as the Templars, who quested for eternal life by drinking human blood and committing sacrifices. Executed for their unholy deeds, the Templars. Bodies were left out for the crows to peck out their eyes. Now in modern-day Portugal, a group of people stumble on the Templars' abandoned monastery, reviving their rotting corpses to terrorize the land. So says IMDb. Awesome. Uh, I mean, thanks for giving us the plot, sim- the backstory, but what the fuck does that have to do with the movie proper? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta love IMDb for stuff like that. Well, they, they yeah, get a I mean, semi-right you know, once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, due diligence. Uh, first time viewing for anyone? No, no, not me. No. All right. So uh, let's dive in. Um, I'll go first. This is one of my all-time favorite Euro horror films. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely love the fact that it combines old school gothic imagery with modern day exploitation tropes. 
that's one of my favorite um, genres here. So, I mean, you, you get the early scenes with all of the wanderings around of the tombs and the decaying crypts. You get the chases of the zombies and them coming out of their tombs and looking all gnarled and decayed and completely, oh, completely over the top in their appearance. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff. It looks amazing. And when combined with all of the modern stuff, with all the lesbianism and even the gore and violence that's present here it just makes for a wonderful time so i have a lot of fun with it um depending on which cut you may have seen and we can talk about this later at the end but uh depending on which version you see it kind of fluctuates between being extremely slow paced versus very quick with very little like downtime so it kind of just depends on which version you see, and uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. But um, yeah, my initial impressions of this, I absolutely love this. This is a fun time. It's right in my wheelhouse. Gothic imagery with exploitation, always a plus. So yeah, I don't have very, uh, I do have a few flaws, but they're not very, very detrimental. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's go around the horn and uh, let's start with you, Alfonso. Well, this is uh, one of the first uh, horror movies I actually watched as a as a kid. Uh, I grew up liking it pretty much. It's, uh, it, I'm not going to say it's one of my favorites, but I do enjoy it. I'll put it on every once in a while. It's on rotation. Uh, I love the cinematography in the in this. It, it's like reminiscent to, of Evil Dead, in my opinion. Especially whenever uh, one of the girls goes into the ruins to uh, sleep. Mm-hmm. I guess, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, this is one of my favorites. But not not favorite movie in general, but in the I guess uh, series. Mm. All right, uh, well, uh, Glenn, let's go with you. I this, this is a movie I. It's kind of weird because I'd always heard about it but never saw it until I bought the box set like a few years back. Um, I thoroughly enjoy it. I have a few gripes with it, you know, just because, you know, I'm I'm just going to say like those day for night shots that don't look mm. like night. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll yeah. get there later tonight. Yeah. I mean, but, it's not going to be for this one, but yeah, we're going to talk about that later tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um other than that, I find it to be a very it's just a, a cool plot and it's a cool just, just the idea, and the, I, I love the idea that when you get, I'll call them zombies, you know, but you know they're they're more closer to like, you know, like the old like medieval like revenant than they are zombies, really. But yeah, I, I've, I, I've, I've also the, heard. Them, I mean, I have to cut you off, but I mean, I've also heard them categorized as mummies rather than zombies. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can probably lump them in very loosely with that, but yeah. You know, I just love the fact that they're quiet. You know, they make yeah. no noise. There's no or anything like that. No, they're just they're just dead silent. And the fact that sometimes like when they they'll show up and there's no music, it's just silence, and it's like, damn. And to this day, they are some of the creepiest undead that have ever been filmed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just awesome. I love it. And 
I'm also just going to say, we'll get into it a bit later on, but uh, that ending with the train, (laughs) I love that. Great stuff. (laughs) All right, Rob, let's go to you. Uh, Well, you know, I've been trying hard all week to think about when I might have seen this movie for the first time. And it's one of those weird movies that I really can't, I don't have any real recollection of when it is, you know, as a kid, say, I'm sure I probably rented it, but I mean, I remember renting burial grounds. I remember renting, you know, certain things off the shelf, but, you know, I don't remember ever really renting Tombs of the Blind Dead. But, you know, looking at the VHS cover box from back in the day, I, I looked on uh, online, I'm like, surely I had to have rented this. But um, it wasn't really until, um, sort of like Len, I guess, I was sort of uh, awoken to it with uh, Derek uh, was uh, in one of his videos. I don't know. I think he was reviewing one of them. And he had the coffin set set up behind him. And uh, and so I immediately sort of leapt on this idea of what is this? I've got to find this. And when I did start the whole process of trying to track down the movies myself, um, but I do I do thoroughly enjoy uh, this film, the, the whole franchise, really. I think mm-hmm. uh, what Osorio was able to do uh, within the time frame that he did it uh, was pretty remarkable. And even with him working in um, radio at the time, and he would only have like four weeks slotted out to make these movies, is amazing on its own self. I mean, uh, to create something new, I mean, really he created kind of a, a, a new monster Mm -hmm. that really didn't quite exist at least in the fashion and i think the most amazing thing in this last week or so um was stumbling upon uh this idea that i I guess asorio really rooted uh or was influenced heavily by this old story from 1861 called the mountain of the souls you guys know about that yeah i've heard about it yeah well, I, I found a uh, English translation and, and was reading it. It's actually fascinating when you actually read the story and, and you think about, you know, what he might have been influenced or pulled out. And really just, I mean, just in short, uh, Clay, have you heard about it? I've heard the name, but I've never, like, read the story or anything. I guess a lot of the mythology or it's rooted in this notion that during when the Moors uh, were, uh, were conquering Spain... This king elicited help from a, uh, these Templars to come in and basically protect their city, Soria. Mm-hmm. And the nobility got really upset because they took it upon themselves as their duty to protect the kingdom. And so when the, when the Templars pretty much took up residency on this mountain, they took over all the best land where there was hunting grounds and whatever else. Well, the nobility get they get tired of it, and they go off there to do some old hunting, but that leads to a big war. They basically kill each other off. The king gets all upset and says, leave the mountain alone. Jump out years later, it's basically a story of this guy, Alonzo, who is fat, who is just in love with Beatrice, who um, basically tries to convince her to win her love over to him, and he offers her uh, a jewel that uh, from his uh, wardrobe, and she, in turn, uh, knowing the backdrop of the story of the mountain with uh, an all, I think, all uh, dead, uh, the soul's day or whatever, um, mm-hmm. the Templars were known to come up out of their graves and whatnot. 
And so she uh, she says, well, you know, you know that little blue ribbon I was wearing earlier? And he says, yeah, yeah. And she goes, well, I would give you that, but uh, I'm afraid I might have left it up on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, All Souls Day is hit, and he, you know, as brave as he is, and he lays it out in front of her, you know, you know me. I'm not, you know, I'm not one to shirk away from things like this, but really, I'm not going out there tonight. But then she's like, really? And then so, of course, he does. And when he goes out there, he never comes back, of course. And she's left in her room hearing the bells from the Templar Monastery uh, going and the screams and everything else that can be heard on the rustling in the wind. And she basically has a long, long, terrified night. And come morning time, she finally, with the sunlight coming through, she's able to kind of get out, out of her bed. And when she does... She notices on her prayer desk her blue ribbon covered in blood. And at the same time, the uh, servants are coming up the stairs into her room to tell her that Alonzo has been found dead up at the mountain. And, of course, it's too late. She's basically frozen with fright and dies standing (laughs) in place at the thought that he may have been in her chambers in the middle of the night laying that ribbon down. And, uh, and so from there, apparently, he was pretty influenced with developing this mythology out of that and capitalizing on a lot of stories and stuff. And so I just found it really fascinating to... Uh, I love it whenever you find something that somebody like Osorio or whatever would have been influenced by something so much older. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of a neat story. And I, you, if you look it up, it's actually even a, uh, it's on YouTube, too. You can even listen to it audibly and stuff. And it's actually a really cool story. But um, as far as the movie, I mean, I, I think the train, it's, we'll talk about it later, I guess. But the train, the whole train sequence in the end is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the, um, that really ugly rape scene. Yeah. Um, I, had a, I had an idea on that. And I'm not sure what you guys think, but it, it almost seems to me, you know, you're coming out of the Frank, you're nearly coming out of the Franco regime. Mm-hmm. I think it ends officially in like 75, but, you know, when Osorio gets started, mm-hmm. they're already starting to flex their creative muscles. They're starting to feel free to start creating stuff that they weren't allowed to. And I was thinking about that today, and I, you know, the thought occurred to me. I wonder if, um, when he uh, shot that scene, if his intent was not uh, to set, to, you know, this message that, uh, you know, she is in effect Spain, and he in effect is Franco, and this is what he did to them. Well, yeah, it, it could be. You never know. I mean, uh, like that, that was that time in Spain was a. Uh, hotbed of using film and everything to say stuff, so. But that was not thought I had. Mm. Could very well be. You never know. Yeah. (laughs) Um... So, anybody have anything to say about uh, one of my favorite sequences? The stalking in the mannequin room? Oh yeah, though. yeah. That, yeah, was, that was, was awesome. It's like yeah. pretty a tense, a tense scene. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, for me, I don't know about you guys, but I got intense giallo vibes off of that. Like something out of like um, Blood and Black Lace, maybe. Yep. With the yep. flashing strobe lighting and yep. the stalking. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. My only gripe with it is it, it doesn't make sense. Like, why does she come yeah. back to life? Yeah, exactly. That That's <laughs> always been one of my big things, too, is that if the zombies follow the traditional path of turning the deceased into one of their own, then everybody mm. else would have been zombied as well. Why yeah. is it just her? I think it was a reason to have, like, a bitten-up naked chick walking around. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the only time he experiments with that in any of the movies, right? It's the only exactly, time we get a yeah, resurrection. Only, yeah. Right, it's the only one that, act- that ever actually comes back. I wonder if maybe, like, the producers or whatever said to him, like, we need, like, another, like, death in this section. You know, and then he's probably thinking, like, well, you know, they're all back in, like, in the main city or whatever. How do we do that? And they're like, well... And make her come back to life. Maybe because I mean, you figure that's the 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 girl from the beginning. So that would have been around the thirty minute mark. But then yeah. after that, then you get the you get the cup. You get the two investigating the incident, which takes them all over town. You mm-hmm. get the discovering the local legends of the village, which causes them to go investigate, and then they encounter the smuggler, which brings them together. So yeah. you don't have a lot of time bet- where they're actually on screen. So I can actually see where they would come up with the idea of trying to, to liven it up a little by throwing another attack in there. I yeah. can definitely see, I can see that happening to where, you know, they're watching this and thinking, okay, you've got a too much time in here where they're not, you know, encountering them. You need something else going on. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like Rob said, it's the only one in the entire franchise that actually has a resurrection or you know, somebody coming back that's already been bit. Yeah. And, I mean, okay, yeah, some of the others, you can't really do that, but, I mean, we'll get to those when we get to them, but... Yeah, I really love the whole resurrection you know, scene. Right, where she resurrects in the morgue and she attacks, where she, she goes after the the attendant there. Where she <laughs> grabs the guy yeah. who's playing with the... Um... Frog, right? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's a frog, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's also her a t- dealer in the mannequin room. Yeah, dude, that morgue guy was awesome, man. <laughs> that 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 brought just <laughs> such a unique sense of quirkiness or humor. It, it was just bizarre, man. His reaction and how he, you know, elated he got with the opportunity to basically pull the shroud away from a dead person so that the person could look at it and then. Of course, the first one is not the right one, so he gets to do it again, and he gets all amped up to do it again. And I got such a huge kick out of just that sequence alone. Yeah, how it, <laughs> you know how it leads into the resurrection of Virginia. I thought, just from a technical point, I thought it was done so freaking well. I just, it, it just, it, it was almost. But see, okay, but here's another thing where they could have missed they missed out on a big opportunity in that it should have been her and the morgue attendant attacking the girl in the in the wig shop to show the idea that the plague is spreading. Right? Yeah, that that would have been it just being that would have worked. Yeah, that would have that would have been far better where she's where you know, she appears first, okay, yeah, you know, you you get the scare, but then she backs away into the corner and then bam, there's the attendant there blocking that exit. Yeah. It would have worked so well. That would have been a far better idea. So. And honestly, it would have given that guy more screen time, which, uh. Yeah. 
<laughs> I just... Uh, I, I mean, five... Well, go ahead, Rob. No, no, I was just, I was going to jump out ahead a little bit, so you go ahead, Doc. Oh, I was going to make a joke. Five to one, that would have been written for Paul Nashy if they would have... <laughs> oh, known. I, I'm sure. I'm sure it would have been... <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Five to one, that role would have been written for Nashy if they, if he knew about it. <laughs> yeah. One one thing I I really wonder about though is the whole how this movie was released in the states. Ooh, okay. So I actually have I actually have some info about that. Yeah. This is so actually. So yeah, this, guys, this is actually pretty wild. If you didn't know this, so when the film came to America, it was released simply as The Blind Dead. That was the original title. Now, what they did was they hacked out 20 minutes worth of footage. I mean, completely just hacked it out. So all of the violence, all of the gore, most of the nudity, most of that is completely trimmed and cut out. What they did was they took the flashback sequence, the sequence where they're hit, where they're slicing open the girl in the monastery. Mm-hmm. That's now the prologue, and that's the introduction to the film. That's supposed to give them an explanation of who the blind dead are. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing, and this is what I think, Rob, what, Glenn, I think you're referring to, is that there was a second U.S. release that paired this as a Planet of the Apes ripoff. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah. Revenge of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. <laughs> How the hell did they figure that? It's like, they look like crispy apes. It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that is pretty ballsy, boy. I mean, too. And, yeah. and, you know, you know that's an extra, too, on the on the uh, Blue Underground disc. Uh, right, yeah. That's, that's, I that's... love it. I got that, yeah. The guy who narrate, narrates that, though, is, is so freaking awesome. It's so serious. Like, <laughs> this is the Planet of the Apes revenge. <laughs> but, you know, that series was so freaking popular, man. I mean, it, it, they just didn't do this stuff over in, you know, Italy. and whatnot. They did it over here, too, though. Yeah. yeah. Anything for Big <laughs> Fuck. Well, there was another thing, too. They ended up putting... Um, Apes into the Godzilla series, where um, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla and Terra Mechagodzilla, mm-hmm. the alien invaders are ape-like simian creatures. Yeah. There's no reason for it. So, I mean, yeah, you know, it's the same time here. It's 1974, so you know they're directly yeah. capitalizing on everything. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, yeah, that, that that was actually really. I, I mean, coming from the same place where. They're trying to pass off Frankenstein's bloody terror as a as a Wolfstein film. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a story for another podcast. So, <laughs> but yeah, um, um, I don't, I don't, know, I don't have the exact quotation of the prologue in front of me, but with the planet of that revenge from Planet Ape thing, the whole thing is that. It, Ties in actually kind of similar in that there was like a battle for domination between man and ape, man won, and then they took the apes survivors, burned their eyes out so they were like being they were being tortured, they burned their eyes out and then they just buried them and mankind came and, and took over. <laughs> and then the apes were saying, We'll come back one of these days. 
So. <laughs> yeah, it sounds stupid. Oh, man. But, I mean, you have to admit, if you didn't know that this was, you know, blind dead in a sense. I don't it, think it would be apes. I know, but, I mean, I can still see gullible audiences in the 70s buying it. I'm sure they did, and I'm sure they were kicking themselves afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait a minute, where's Charlton Heston? Yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> of all the things, I mean, I could have understood, you know, saying, like, this is like a, a later version of, like, Night of the Living Dead or something, like it's a sequel to that or something, but Planet of the Apes. Hmm. Well, wasn't already Revenge from Re- Revenge of the Planet of the Apes already out by then, or? Uh, I think because so. I, I forget how that franchise went. I I don't know. I just isn't there one where they like blow up their planet or something? Yeah. Um, I think I think that was the only one. Cause I was yeah, because there was like five or six, and I think the last two were made for TV films shot at the same time. Ah. They were like filmed back to back. This, but I don't know if that's the I don't know if that's real or not. I I don't remember. Well, I see Planet came out in '68. What was that? Planet came out in '68. Beneath yeah. the Planet came out in '70. Escape came out in '71. Beneath came out in 70. So they're, they're all... I mean, this was such a... Conquest came out in 72. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. Conquest, yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, this came out in 71 in Spain. So you're talking about it coming to America like right at the height of that franchise. Oh, so. yeah. Big time. And then Battle for the Planet came out in 73. Yeah, it probably would have been around the same time that this came over, so... Dang, that's pretty tight, though. That's a lot of movies for a short period of time. Yeah. Um. So, we mentioned this earlier. Uh, thoughts on the train sequence? Well, I love... Oh, I, I, love it. <laughs> I love the whole use of the train throughout the whole movie and how it foreshadows things and, uh, you know, and just, uh, just the idea that the guy who runs the train, you know, you will not stop it won't nearly at all cost for most of the movie won't stop anywhere in that area and of course when they finally do at the end it's you know to their doom but I just find it funny when you when you really think about it this entire movie is predicated on like a woman throwing I have a bit of like a hissy fit and being jealous of like her boyfriend or something yeah pretty much jealousy got everybody killed yeah like literally everybody and that's that's really weird too because who who really is she more jealous of her her old fling that you know she had way back when or the opportunity that possibly a relationship with this guy you're not even really sure exactly who she's more upset at yeah yeah it's weird So, I mean, because it, it makes even less sense because, for me, she's with him to start with. 
because he's already there at the hotel when she when she meets Virginia. Mm-hmm. So is if she was there to meet Betty, if she if her and Betty were supposed to be together, then why is she with the guy in the first place? Because one, I mean, he's already like ten years older than her. Because the other girl's older than Virginia is, and they did not look right when they were doing the flashback to them in schoolgirl pigtails. Yeah. Did you guys watch this uh, the the English dub or Spanish dub? Uh, Spanish for me. Spanish. I watch okay. Spanish. I was yeah. just wondering if there was a difference uh, in dialogue. Maybe that that's why some of the stuff doesn't really make sense. Well, it's not just it. I mean, the the general setup of it doesn't really make sense because if I mean, I I get that her and Betty meeting together was a total coincidence because she just happens to look up at the pool and notice her there. But if that's the case, then she's already with the other guy when she meets Betty. So she's jealous of him. Is she jealous of him for hitting on Betty or is she jealous at the fact that Betty doesn't want her? What I thought was uh, she was with the guy at the pool and she just ran into Betty. Or uh, Yeah, that's that's what I figured. But they weren't officially together. The guy and the girl, uh, and I think she was more getting jealous towards uh, the guy giving the other girl attention over her. I think I, that's what I think. I, I, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I but then that doesn't. I, I get that, but that doesn't make sense as to why she would leave them alone if that's what she's trying to prevent in the first place. If she's jealous of him for hitting on her, she would be flirting with him. Over, like you're not gonna give up and just concede defeat if that's gonna end up causing you to end up causing what you're jealous of in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that doesn't that whole thing just doesn't make any sense. No. And why would you jump off the train over that? <laughs> yeah, I, because I mean. The only thing that we actually really get is just the two scenes on the train where he's helping her adjust her luggage. Mm-hmm. And then they have that one conversation in the hallway, and then she jumps she jumps the train like two minutes after that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like what? She couldn't have gone to the, to the end and then just like stayed on the train and not got off and gone back like any normal person would have done? Yeah. You know, no, I'm going to jump off here in the middle of nowhere with just a spooky old castle. Yeah. Uh, and more importantly, she heads into the graveyard instead of heading back down the tracks into civilization the way she came. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, yeah. You get, don't you get kind of the impression that she's at least, at least initially, thinks that that just might be some town up on the hill and not, you know, some decrepit ruins? Probably, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, she should have figured it out when she noticed doors that were rotting off and stuff that, you know, maybe this isn't the right way to go about things, but, you know. Yeah. But like, I mean, like I said, you're not going to go back down the tracks the way you came back to the hotel. Yeah, like, no, it's like, uh, you've got to go stay in this creepy uh, abandoned monastery or whatever. I think it's pretty amazing, though, that she actually jumped off that train to begin with. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, okay, I get, I grant you the train's only probably going about 15, 20 miles an hour, but still. Still, though. Still, though. Yeah. I mean, anything yeah. can happen. I mean, <laughs> holy crap, for her to just, and I, don't know, I don't know, was it that or when she fell off the horse? I mean, either way, she could have, uh, you know, low budget filmmaking, I guess. I just find it funny that the other two were like, like, hell no, we're not jumping off. <laughs> you know, like she jumps off, you know, so it's obviously safe enough to jump off. And they're just kind of like, nope. <laughs> like, we're normal people. We'll go to the end of the line and then come back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I almost think she was just I think she was just so infatuated with that guy. But he was just sort of leading her on. Not really, you know, not really serious, as near serious as she was maybe wanting it. And then when Beth, when, when Beth comes into the picture, I think it just just sets her off, you know, in, you know, into a sort of a childish, immature sort of reaction. And she doesn't know what else to do, so she just runs away. Yeah. Maybe she's intimidated by the fact that they have a past together, and she doesn't want that to come up or something. I don't know. But yeah, but then if that was the case, then she should be flirting with the guy over whether or not he should be with her over Betty. I mean, Mm. the the whole thing just makes no sense. (laughs) It seemed like she was also just... uh... Like leading the guy on though, because you, I think the guy says that oh we're nothing serious, we're just friends or some shit, and it and she's yeah. playing hard to get. It seems so. could be. Um, yeah, I mean the, the, everything about this just it's just really kind of sloppy. I mean, I get the idea that you're trying to get the thing in motion and you're trying to get you know everything engaged, but yeah, just the whole thing is just really kind of sloppy. Yeah, I mean, you could have you could have fixed it with one line of dialogue. Just have it that, like, she's, like, a student of architecture. And she was interested in the building. Yeah, check out the old ruins or something. Yeah. Uh, if that, that was what the trip, that, if that was if that was what the trip was about, then okay, yeah. Yeah, know. that would have made so much more sense. <coughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, if they're, you know, the whole thing, they're sitting at the pool, like, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm, I heard that there's these rumors about this old abandoned village nearby. Hopefully I'm yeah. going to take some time to go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that one little drop right there. Oh, okay, well, if they're going to go do that, well, fuck you guys, I'm going to go take my leave, and I'm going to go do what I wanted to do in the first place, and oh, shit, the whole town's infested. My bad. Yeah, yeah. it would have made so much more sense. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to get my dick. I'm going to go get my, you know, learning on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, why would you sleep in some ruins, you know? it's, it's uh... I mean, you're in, you're in Portugal. I mean, it's nice out. <laughs> sleep outside. Yeah. I just want to know this. Like, you're being chased, though by dried-up, shriveled, crispy dead guys, and you don't think, I have a fire here. Why don't I set them on fire? I mean, okay, one, I mean, this is kind of like what we were discussing with the zombie in the graveyard, when the zombie in the cemetery from 
Fulci zombie. Mm. You see that thing rising up in front of you, your brain is fried. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, yeah, that thing is, you know, there's going to be some kind of instinct as like a uh, run. But then yeah. your other in- your other instincts are just going to be keep moving. Your brain is yeah. not going to be like, okay, blowtorch or, you know, pitchfork yeah. or whatever's in front of you. I can understand the idea, especially with, you know, like what they do happens later on when they actually come out and we get like a bigger scene of them. Mm. But that first scene where they're chasing her through the through that church, mm-hmm. you really get the idea, and I mean it's a rightful rightfully so. I gotta move, and I don't have time to stand around thinking of things. Like yeah. you know, that is genuinely like your brain is fried trying to comprehend what's going on. It's gonna get you out of there more than anything. Yeah, and you know, and you know what's great about that? That leads into I think one of the most fascinating moments in the not just this film but he'll replicate it several times but when she gets on that horse there's that whole thing about time and space and when, i love it how when she takes off on that horse that she's caught in that same sort of tug and pull of time and space as they are so when they you know when she goes off it's sort of that slow motion mm-hmm. yeah uh, it's just it, it just begs uh you know what what did what did she see? You know, how how did that affect her? Because obviously something is weird that is happening. I mean, the slow motion as she's going. Um, and we'll see, you know, we always see that. Anytime anyone ever gets on a horse to flee, you know, like in seagulls, you know, it's always that slow motion thing, which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, final call. Anybody have anything else they want to bring up or mention? Would you? Would you? Now, I didn't watch the. Uh, I didn't watch the, like the English and then the, the Spanish back and forth to you know sort of clear that out. But my understanding is in the Spanish version, one that we all watched. Um, at the very end, you know, after uh, the train uh, moment, right at the very very end. Uh, the frame just freezes. Right. And is that like night of the living dead sort of moment um, where you just kind of like you're hearing stuff, but then you're seeing them just, you know, frozen in time. Um, would you guys, what did you guys think about that? Just how they, you know, came to that very, very end. I almost think that they, they, they wanted it to end, but they didn't actually want to end the movie, so they just kind of did that and leave it like a as like a cliffhanger for what's actually going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I get the idea is that they're trying to start the idea of like the the Templars are finally coming to civilization, but I mean, I don't know if it'll have any. If it has any kind of like, I don't know what's the proper term here, but I, I, I get that there's like a sort of apocalypse that they're trying to imply, but I don't know if they did it properly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I, wish, I was just saying, I wish we would have saw a little bit more in the train. I mean, what we did see was pretty terrifying. I mean, even 
fact that you got, you know, little kids aren't spared in this thing. I mean, <laughs> that was, oh, man, when the blood washes over her face and, oh, man. Mm-hmm. I just wish we would have got a little bit more in the train, but you know it's it's funny because when you get when you arrive finally at the end and then it all starts to unfold and you know you got the people going on to the train and they start realizing what's happening. You know you've seen this stuff in movies, you know, over and over that have copied copied that, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny. The one movie that kind of came to my mind actually was uh, the whole train thing arriving in the station. Uh, you know, Ghost of Mars is. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure it's been done a million times. But I thought the whole train, the attack on the train, was pretty. Uh, was pretty awesome, man. I I just wish we would have got a little bit more inside it. Yeah, that's a scene though that for some reason always remi- reminds me of that scene in um, Predator Two on the subway. I don't know why, because it's not very similar, but. You think uh, in that ending, uh, the uh, the Templars were planning to turn everybody, or it's just uh, we're just gonna st- uh, start killing everybody, or what was the? Uh... Yeah, I got more of like the impi- like apocalypse, like they're coming, like they're reached civilization now. They're gonna carry on their brand of terror and torment and all of that kind of stuff now in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it was. That's what I'm saying is that, you know, you get the idea like early on where they, you know, okay, yeah, they turn the girl and they turn, you know, you get, you don't know if she turned the morgue attendant or not, but you get the idea that they killed, that she came back. Now that's going to start carrying on into the rest of, rest of civilization. Like they're going to have to deal with the Templar curse. It would have been cool. Yeah. I mean, that would have been a fun way to carry on the franchise, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, is there any any other moments in the film we're missing? We're pretty much. Just pretty much those day for night shots. And the Templars don't like jazz. Apparently, they that's what woke them up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's essentially what this movie is. It's like, damn it, you kids with your loud music. <laughs> Back in my day, we listened to harpsichords. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but those day for night uh, shots were weird. Oh, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there, trust me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, like I said, final call. Anyone else have anything they want to mention or bring up? No. All right, then let's uh, go with ratings. Let's go backwards. Rob, let's start with you. Oh, boy. Uh, boy, I really, I, I've been struggling in the last few days on all of these movies, but uh, I can, I, I think, uh, I think I've settled for Tombs. Uh, considering um, Osario, what he's able to do and the originality of it and the time frame that he worked in and just how, you know, there are moments in this movie that are just so freaking awesome and then i mean and then there are other moments that are sort of like boy with a little bit more writing you know as you know that as you pointed mm-hmm. out um but i i think i feel pretty good just staying with uh i think a nine out of ten overall just for 
it's the first one and all that it, it achieved, and not just for him, but for Spain. I mean, he's part of that early boom of horror um, in Spain. So I, I like nine out of ten. Um, and then what do we got? Rewatchability. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, for this one, I, I'm I stayed around an eight point five out of ten for rewatchability, and then I I say definitely it's a must buy though. All right, Glenn. Uh, for me, it's an eight, like all around. Um, the rewatchability is definitely like nine or ten, because I can watch this movie any day, anytime, and I love it. <laughs> and it's a definite buy. We just need like a good Blu-ray set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alfonso. Uh, eight out of ten overall. Uh, rewatchability ten. But like I said, this is one that on heavy rotation for me, and uh, buy most definitely. All right. <laughs> so yeah, um, I'm pretty much there with you guys. I'm a nine, nine, and buy. Now I do have will scores for everything. Okay. So, cool. I'm. Yeah, I'm going to end up giving Will scores. Overall, Will gives it a 7 out of 10. Rewatch, he's like a... He gives it a 9, and he gives it a buy. Nice. (laughs) So I would definitely want to have heard why he came down just a tad bit lower. Because he is the lowest out of all of us, so... Yeah. Alright, so uh, with that under the... in, back into the crypts. Let's head to our next movie of the evening, 1973's Return of the Evil Dead. And yes, I, I said that name properly. It's not Return of the Blind Dead. Watch the movie. Look at the DVD cover art. It says Return of the Evil Dead. <laughs> oh man. Terror once again treks its legendary course, making your flesh creep with pleasure. Night, when the unliving rise again from their graves, you will tremble with the return of the evil dead. Their hell-born revenge, for which there is no assurance of protection, nor will you escape the fear the anxiety which the return of the evil dead provokes. A new high in excitement. Help me! The return of the evil dead. Return of the Evil Dead with Tony Kendall and Fernando Sancho. The terrifying thriller of the year. Do not attend this film alone. We suggest you bring at least one large partner to hold you tightly. The lifeless horsemen will make this theater into a living horror. The Return of the Evil Dead. The return of the evil dead. You sure you're in fit condition? No, no! 
and don't scream. Awesome. Yeah. So, anybody have the uh, storyline or synopsis? I I got the INB up again. All right, go ahead. You want to have fun with that? Uh, here we go. <laughs> Five five hundred years after they were blinded and executed for committing human sacrifices, a band of Templar knights returns from the grave to terrorize a rural Portuguese village during its centennial celebration. Being blind, the Templars find their victims through sound, usually the screams of their victims. Taking refuge in a deserted cathedral, a small group of people must find a way to escape from the creatures. Another wonderful synopsis from IMDb. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's go first this time. Alfonso, let's start with you. Uh, This this one uh, wasn't really a first time watch. I've I've seen all all these movies plenty of times. Uh, It used to be one of my favorites, but it's just... uh, after rewatching it again and again, it's, uh, you know, I don't care too much for it. There's a bunch of problems, in my opinion. Uh, but I mean, the ending's pretty cool to me. I guess mm. I don't really have a lot of stuff to say about it. All right, so uh, Glenn, let's go with you. Okay, this one is my favorite of the series. It's essential. Let's be honest. It's almost. The, the same story as the first one. You know, people are there, you know, they come out of the ground, they eat them and stuff. Um, I just find it to be, like, all around just more, like, a much tighter telling of the story, if that makes sense. Where, where, the, where the first one had, like, those moments of, uh, you know, like, nothing happening and stuff. This didn't have those. There was always something happening. And I appreciated that. I also love the fact that, um, you know, the horse in the horses in this are actually dead. And that, that one scene where uh, the chick runs, like, you know, takes the horse and is back at, like, the guard post and is like, uh, like, uh, like, like, why do you dress up your horse? Like, I didn't dress it up. It's dead. And she pulls up the thing, and it's all like black, and the guy freaks out a bit. I thought that was kind of cool. It was something I wish had been addressed in tombs, because the horses in tombs are very much alive with sheets on them. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I just find all around, Return of the Evil Dead is my favorite in the series it's it, it just it just more stuff seems to work i believe the characters more if that makes sense you know there's there's no random woman getting pissed and you know causing the apocalypse you know <laughs> th- this was you know this is one where there's an actual villain, if you will, who kicks who kickstarts everything off. Mm, well that depends. You know? That depends. Um I have more to say about that as we go along. Okay, cool. But you know 
that, that was just one thing, like, in, uh, you know, in Tombs, is it just, like, they they come back every night? It's never really, like, like mentioned, like, like why this happens. Where in Return of the Evil Dead, it, you know, there, there's a reason why this is happening due to the date and, like, the sacrifice and everything. So it just kind of works. And I love the levels of gore in it. You know, I I love the fact that, you know, like, again, like, kids aren't really safe. Now, admitted, this the one in this one doesn't get dead, but, you know, it was still kind of cool. To have yeah. a like a kid in there that's like in genuine jeopardy, and again, the blind dead just are kind of terrifying. Yeah, so that's me. <laughs> All right, Rob. I think uh, I don't. Know, this movie's interesting. I, I like. I just like how a serial for. Every every film is like a different sort of take or perspective on how he's going to, you know, visualize these Templars on screen. And I think it's pretty cool that, you know, with this one, he sort of uh, ups the ante a little bit and uh, has a town here at the center of things. And I love how uh, this really becomes sort of a siege on uh, on this town where, you know, seemingly no one is going to be spared and... I thought, I mean, I thought he did a pretty good job at just, uh, you know, setting that, setting that up, um, for the most part, I think, um, I think, you know, as they get to the church and it's sort of like, there's this funnel effect for our main characters as it sort of narrows down, um, even more than all of that, I think, I, I really, I think I like the very end. I, I think that really had a, uh, I don't know if anyone really caught it, but I thought it had a really, uh, heavy Birds vibe. Mm-hmm. Oh, was, I caught that. I caught that. Yeah, and, and I thought that was like really, really super cool. It was just like I was really, I was like really okay with just how that just happened. Um, not maybe as quite. I mean, the whole you know. I I, I think if you're gonna have a guy who uh, if you're gonna have a guy who's going to be like the town idiot who's who's getting you know sort of beaten up on it. I think that's probably the reason why he wants to unleash the Templar Knights on this town. I think uh, you could have probably done more with his character, um, you know, in terms of how he was being treated by the town to just make that more valid, I think, maybe. Because um, he really is pretty villainous, man. I mean, he, he's, I mean, and I don't know if there's a lot to sort of any moral justification, you know, a, 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 Except for the little tiny bit we get with him. But, I mean, the whole town celebrating. I mean, I just, you know, I think it's cool how it all sort of just ups the ante a little bit. And uh, and then that whole relationship with the mayor calling the other guy. And the other guy's like, stop drinking, you're all drunk. And, oh, I love that. You know, I mean, and it's just like, you know, and it's so cool to just really remember that this is the early 70s. I mean, a lot of the things that we see in these movies are going to be cliche later on in tons of other movies. But mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff was pretty fresh, I mean, you know, at the moment for audiences. So I, so before anyone else was really, you know, upping it up a bit, I thought it was cool how he did it with this second 
film. Although it is not my favorite, but uh, it has its moments, definitely. Mm. I, I just uh, love that, okay. uh, that one scene where, where he calls the guy up and he's like, we're, we're, we're trapped in the church. And he's like, oh, good. The the town that prays together stays together. <laughs> and it's just like, really? Like, that's what you're going with? I love that. <laughs> oh, boy. Mm-hmm. All right. So for me, um, I'm actually going to come in and I'm going to echo some of what Alfonso said. And um, for the longest time, this was my favorite in the franchise. And I had long thought it was based on a lot of what Glenn was actually talking about. It's fast paced. It's furious. It's, you know, it's a lot more stripped down. We don't get as many, you know, side tangents or, you know, just aimless, aimless wandering around the countryside trying to, you know, find stuff. It's a lot more of an action film. And that was actually a out of the reason why I was a huge fan of it when I first saw it, but coming coming to it again, I got to side with them. I think there's a lot of a lot more issues in this one than a lot of people think that there are. Now, a lot of this is something that I mentioned earlier, in that there's the difference between the American and the European edits. Mm-hmm. Now, the European edit, which I'm sure we all watched, mm-hmm. that there directly places their a resurrection squarely at the hands of the town, you know, the guy that we've been calling after, the, you know, weirdo, hunchback, or... Young Stephen King, that's what yeah. I call him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that places the, the resurrection squarely at his feet. Mm. If you watch the American version of the film, it's completely changed around. That <laughs> subplot's completely gone. It happens oh. simply because that whole... Scene is completely removed, and it's made out to be simply they're resurrected because of the celebrations going on. <laughs> the, so, so yet again, it, yeah, uh, well, damn you, kids, making all the noise when we're trying to sleep. Well, no, what they're doing is is that they're making it explicit that it's the 500th year celebration of the ceremony. They're yeah. that they're they're playing it directly off of that, so it's more of a sense of it's the anniversary of the event happening not just you know they're having the celebration it's just it's the 500th year that it it happened you know we're going to come out and raise some hell mm. but my one of my main issues like what Rob was saying that you know it, okay yeah the entire fin- finale it rips off Night of the Living Dead it rips off um, the birds the one scene in this film that I absolutely hate this for the off-screen murder of the townspeople yeah that was wasted potential yeah yeah that i would have killed to see literally (laughs) but yeah um for me my other main issue with this is that it's totally different from the original and i don't really see where it came from once again we get you know, a brand new resurrection story. We get a brand new reason for. What was that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought I heard somebody <laughs> trying to chime in. But um, okay, yeah, anyways, and you know, okay, you know, it goes off on a different side story. It doesn't, you know, feel like it can carry. 
feel like a continuation of the original. It just feels like this own separate film. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really don't see where that that comes from. It, you know, you could have carried on, you know, maybe not necessarily the same story as where we left off in the original, but you could have at least, you know, not redone their backstory again, not redone, you know, their connection to the town. Mm. You know, it, it's a brand new entry and it doesn't really feel like it needs to. It just, it goes off on these tangents just to do it. And I don't really know if I agree with why. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I also, you know, I don't care for some of the side stories, you know, the one that we get is, the, you know, the mayor and his relationship with the guy that brought, that, that he brought in for the fireworks. Display. Mm-hmm. Like that, just, it doesn't really feel necessary. It doesn't really feel like that needs to be there because all of that is just forgiven in the span of two seconds, just because, all of a sudden, you know, his henchman that he actually hired to beat up two seconds earlier is now by his side saying, yeah, we see these things are headed our way. Yeah. Like that, that whole thing just, it feels really weird and rushed. I'm not really a fan of the death order either. It feels really weird the way that they knock everybody off. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It just, it really feels like they're I mean yeah they're trying to go for some surprises but a lot of the scenes don't make any sense as to where they're knocking these people off in the course of the film mm. like they leave the mother to the end rather than you know get outraged over the death of her husband yeah I mean okay yeah you could have you know had her do heroic stand right then and there and then knocked her off and then okay that's where the daughter comes into play but mm. it, yeah yeah, no. I, rewatching this, I actually came down on this a little bit lower than where I usually was, or I, I thought I had been. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Anybody else? Uh, let's dive into this. Um, I well, it's funny to jump kind of off of what you were saying, Don. I have a uh, number thirteen of Gorezone from back in ninety, and there's a beautiful. I think it's one, two, three, four, five page interview with Osorio and the that issue comes up actually and he and he kind of gets a little defensive and just you know sort of says you know what he says over here in Europe things are a little bit different he says we don't take the natural you know sequel idea where where a movie that follows after another movie is linked up we don't we just don't do that over here and so his you know approach to each one is almost a it's almost a different story involving the same villainous character, but he has the freedom, as he says, to, to basically approach it and do with it as he pleases. And so I, it's just kind of interesting how he sort of, you know, dealt with that in the interview. Um, but, um, I, you know, there's a few things about the, the, with the town idiot guy that is kind of interesting when the when the Templars do start to rise up, I don't know if you guys notice this or not, it's almost timed exactly when the townspeople are burning the uh, Templars in effigy. Mm-hmm. And so as they're burning, you know, they're in town, they're rising, unbeknownst, of course, to the people in the town that, you know, you know, got this on its uh, way. Um, I, I think another neat little moment I thought was uh, when... Uh, with our town idiot, you know, it's funny how, you know, the Templars, when they rise up, they just sort of, 
walk on by him and they don't kill him. They just sort of leave him. Mm-hmm. Until the end when he tries to get that girl out of the tunnel and, of course, you know, meets his... I thought that was interesting how to uh, uh, deal with that. So, um, I don't know. Like I said, I think there's neat moments in there um, that work fairly well, I think. It's just lining the whole thing up is, is, you know, falls a little short for me, I think. But some interesting things in there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those. I, I don't hate the movie. I, I'm still really high on it. But it was one of those weird words, like, okay, I'm 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 into it. I remember, like, oh, you know, these weird little bits that popped up that just, I, I don't know, I never really noticed them or it didn't really bother me before. Like, okay, a lot of the, you know, stuff with the finale, you know, yeah, okay, that's Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, they completely took, the you know, the ending nearly shot for shot from the birds. I noticed it, but I didn't really bother it. Maybe it's because I watched, like, the birds maybe within, like, the past week or so, because I had to do it for another show. Mm. So, that it was really one of those where it's like, okay, yeah, you know, you took the ending nearly shot for shot, you know, like, how smart, how good for you kind of a thing. Mm. I mean, I can probably because of that but I mean yeah I knew exactly where I was coming from because I'd seen the birds first but <laughs> here's, uh, here's here's one last little thing Don what do you think about or anyone else what do you think about I, I got this the last time I revisited this movie the other night I thought to myself going towards the end stretch I thought you know what? I wonder how much this movie influenced uh, John Carpenter with his fog movie I can see it yeah. um I mean, yeah, the you know the idea of a town celebrating the anniversary of a, of a event in their history, and then the you know the recipients of the curse end up returning to fulfill the prophecy from years earlier. It's kind of almost a dry run in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just in there as a little vibe I, I caught thinking about it. Yeah, it's not that far off. I can actually see that kind of being like this being an it being an influence on that. Well, no, you always see the stories too about how how much uh, Alien would have been uh, influenced by Mario Baba's uh, Planet of the Vampires, and it, it just makes it really does beg to wonder how influenced were a lot of American directors at on the mm. Italian European scene. Mm. You know, back in the day when these movies weren't in everyone's houses. You know, but yeah. they were perhaps somehow seeing them. Film school, probably, or who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Carpenter's ever actually admitted to having an affinity for Euro horror. I know he cited Argento a few times, but mm. I never remember him actually giving like European horror like much of an influence. Because I know he stated that he had a lot more to do when he created Halloween. He had a lot more to do with Black Christmas than he did the Euro- the European stuff. Mm, right. So I'm saying I don't rem- I don't know if Carpenter's ever really admitted much of an influence from Euro horror. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not necessarily. I mean, you know, yeah, it's not necessarily all that close. But I mean, there's a lot of storyline connections. 
I mean, you know, like I said, the town founding, you know, the anniversary of the event of this massive murder that they committed, the, uh, you know, celebrations going off, causing the, you know, murder to come back to life and seek revenge, the entire town being held up in a church trying to dispel what's happening outside of them. I mean, there's some influences there. I mean, I don't necessarily know if there's like beat for beat kind of a thing. But yeah, that's not necessarily all that far off. I can definitely see how this could potentially be, if not a dry run, maybe, you know, like a variation on the story, because I can imagine that that would sort of be somewhat similar of a, you know, like an old fable about, you know, the, you know, spirits of the past coming back to haunt them. Now, here's another thing, too, we didn't, that we didn't know mentioned. How how devilish was it of the mayor to use that little girl as a shield? <laughs> I was about I was about to mention that too. Oh yeah. man, that was awful. He's like, go on, go find your father, and it's like, oh god, you've already sent him to his death. <laughs> but how, no. how how valiant the mom though, uh, sacrificing herself like that? That was a pretty cool scene yeah. too. Mm. Yeah, which, um, funnily enough, I want to mention both of the actors in those sequences. The mom is actually the main girl from part one. Really? Yeah. I didn't even notice it. Yeah, that's her. Damn. Yeah. And the other one I wanted to mention, if anybody has ever seen any sort of giallo, spaghetti western, plesiotesque, crime drama, thrillers, anything like that, Adam in the 60s, 70s from Europe, from that kind of scene. Mm-hmm. You've seen the mayor. That's Fernando Sancho. He made a career out of essentially being Spanner's George Buckflowers. If you <laughs> wanted a sleazy, corrupt, morally repugnant per- person, you hide. <laughs> yeah, he is a, that guy is a pretty popular, is a pretty big actor in that scene. I mean, that's pretty see awesome. See if I can pull his yeah, let me see if I can pull his um catalog up real fast. He has a bunch of pretty big titles too. <laughs> hey Don, you mentioned uh, that you you mentioned that girl uh in the two. Wasn't the uh smuggler in one and two as well? I think he was. I'm not entirely sure. I'd have to look. I mean I'm looking up them, I'm looking up the other guy. Let me look him up. Um, uh, go ahead and keep talking for a second. Yeah, so essentially it's almost kind of like a Return of the Living Dead Part 2. You take some of the same actors and throw them in a similar situation. But without, yeah. the, without the fourth wall breaking nod. <laughs> the, the Michael Jackson dancing. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> hmm. Awesome. Would you guys taking your chances uh, riding the motorcycle or staying in the church? Oh, um, honestly, staying in the church? Because, I mean, they're the ones that survived. You know, it's, it, you know, what's funny about that is I was uh, revisiting for my body bags review uh, Rec Rec Three the other night, mm. and, and it's funny how they they take all that stuff to such a heightened level of seriousness. You know, when you know they they hide in the the church 
part because you know they won't go in there. They just they won't because it's holy ground. And it's pretty, <laughs> you know, pretty pretty cool how they really took that to that level and that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so uh yeah, here we go. Here's a couple of that um so that other guy that uh Fernando Sancho guy. This is just a couple of the films I found. So he's in $5,000 for one ace. The pistol for Ringo, shoot to kill. Doc, Hands of Steel, The Return of Ringo, Seven Dollars to Kill, Taste of Killing, Dynamite Jim, Django Shoots First, The Big Gun Down, $10,000 for a Massacre, Dakota Joe, Crazy Westerners, and I'm only like 1967 out of his career. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of awesome. Yeah. Like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I play a professional scumbag. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah was he in Sartana yep that's him that's I thought he was him. yeah that's what I'm saying yeah you've seen him if you've watched any of those kinds of movies yeah he's in that <laughs> awesome that's <laughs> oh. what I'm saying yeah if you wanted somebody that was like a you know morally corrupt sleazebag or just like a perverted little perverted psychopath he was your guy for those kinds of films. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Anybody uh, have anything else they want to say or bring up? What, what did you guys? How did you guys feel about the ending? I loved it personally. I liked the idea that almost like. It was a matter of, like, they've gone, they've taken their revenge, and that's kind of it. They're spent now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, mm-hmm. I kind of <laughs> liked it. I liked it, too. I, I think that's another reason why I mentioned The Fog, because there's that weird sense in, in Carpenter's movie with Fog. It's like, I think Adrian Barbosa says it towards the end. It's like, as quickly as they came came they suddenly were gone and that was sort of the feeling you had in this movie it's like as quickly as they came in boom suddenly they were just gone it was just a non-threat mm-hmm. and whoever hung on to the end just could walk out yeah for me there's one small issue I have with it mm-hmm. the entire it makes it out almost as if it waits until daybreak in a sense is like, that's what gives them reprieve because that's when they all fall down. It's because, mm-hmm. you know, like you get that shot where the, you know, they all like crumple the dust and they all turn into, you know, the things or whatever. Yeah. But in the re- in the other French, in you know, the rest of the films in the series, daybreak never affected them. Yeah. They emerged at yeah, night, like but the... the train sequences in daylight, the, mm-hmm. You know the train sequence in part one's in daylight. You get the scene in the be- you know look at the scene at the beach in part two where they're emerging onto dry land in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden you get the you know they just stop. Yeah, you know yeah okay there's nobody you know they can't sense anybody so there's not going to be any for them to you know like hunt or move around or anything. But you know it's almost as if the idea that the daybreak is the one that causes them to 
crumple to dust. Mm. You know, like almost like vampires in a sense, but yet that's never really affected them in the past. I've just had a thought. Didn't didn't like the main Templar guy at the beginning say that you know like we're like we'll come back sometime, whatever, and we'll like destroy your town and all your people or whatever. The three that survived, they're all outsiders. No, because yeah. it's well, the, no, the little girls. No, because Vivian's the mayor's wife. Yeah, but I mean, she came from outside because she was with that other guy before, right? She did come from a lower class. Yeah. Yeah, I want. I wonder if it's something like you know, like outsiders are there. They can they can get away. We 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 don't have a real problem with them, unless they get in the way. But wasn't the little girl part of the village? See, I I always assumed that that, that was someone they yeah, called I, in. I seem to remember. No, um, no because remember, mm-hmm. that's the daughter of the. Because remember, that's the daughter of the one henchman. Because it's yeah. the. Because remember, it's the one henchman and his wife, and they're standing on the rooftop yeah. watching everything when the celebrations are going. They're the ones that are standing by, and then that's her daughter that's the one that survives. Mm. So she would still be technically considered, you know, yeah. villager. Yeah. And I mean, they don't spare kids. No, no, yeah. the first one. <laughs> well, that was weird, too, how they sort of just, uh, in, you know, slightly impaled her on the wall as bait. But they didn't yeah. kill her. They just sort of put her out as bait. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Because, I mean, like you said, if she's part of the village, then yeah, she would have been targeted just as viciously as the rest of the family. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think a lot of this. I think a lot of this goes back to what I said earlier, though. I think I think Asori on the end just didn't care. I mean, it, I've heard this. I've heard the stories before. Like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was notorious for you know if, if he had a certain character in one book who, who had broken right arm and he picked that character right up in the next book. It might have been their left arm that was broken, and you know, and anytime somebody would try to pin them down on those inconsistencies, he'd be like, "Really? That's what you're worried about? I'm just worried about telling a good." And you know, where that came up actually was funny is if you watch, um, you know, if you watch Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, you know, there's that great moment where Khan has uh, Chekhov and says, "You, yours is a face I will never forget." Yet Chekhov isn't even in the original episode <laughs> and, so, and so when the director is called out for that he he leans on sir arthur conan doyle and says really you're worried about that i'm trying to make a great movie here and, and you know so i mean there's i maybe as frustrating as it can be from time to time it's there's something to be said i guess when directors just don't you know see it as a level of importance mm. yeah I mean, okay, yeah, I I understand where a lot of people are coming from in that, you know, if you're going to be watching this, like, you want to have, like, a consistency and a sense of, like, cohesion with everything, but then you also kind of want to, you know, like, okay, well, we can't let facts get in the way of a good story kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I, can un- I can understand both points to an extent. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, I mean, because if you're looking for continuity and, cons- I mean, this franchise is the last franchise you're going to find. I mean. <laughs> Very well, true. European European films are going to be the European films. But, but you know what? But that's why I love it, man. I love, I, I love, like, and it drives some people crazy, but I love Lucio Fulci's movie. I mean, I love City of the Living Dead, how it's just image over, over you know, substance or the, yeah. over the narrative. I love it, though. I love it because it just... Those imagery images that he's able to create are so freaking crazy. I, I you know it's just I don't get lost in the whole. Well, wait a minute, this part don't make. I, I just I don't know. I just I love I love the European sense of filmmaking, and, and I'm growing deeper. And it's growing. It's outward because for the longest time it was just in the Italian scene, but now you know I'm I'm falling in love with the Spanish scene as well and uh and i'm just seeing how you know and even uh the grapes of death uh jean roland uh film that came out in the 70s yeah it's interesting how these people are just experimenting with different ways of, of telling stories utilizing you know somewhat similar you know ideas but making them different yeah mm-hmm. um yeah so uh like i said again anybody else have anything they want to add or final thoughts mm, no I'm good no nah. alright so uh, let's uh, give our ratings on this one uh, let's start with you Alfonso I'm gonna go with uh, 7 out of 10 overall uh, and uh, would buy yeah, definitely buy uh, watchability I'm gonna go with 5 like uh, pop it in every once in a while, but it's not something that I'm gonna watch on heavy rotation. Uh, all right, uh, Will or Glenn? <laughs> yeah, for for me, it's a nine. Like I said, it's my favorite one in the series. Um, rewatchability is a nine, and buyer rent a definite buy. All right, Rob. Uh, 8 out of 10, uh, again, like uh, the first one, 8.5 out of 10 for rewatchability, and absolutely not. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm 8.5 out of 10. Um, I did have this a little higher, but like I said, I came down just a little on a few other nagging points about it. I will say, though, a lot of the issues I have with it aren't really that big of a detriments to the enjoyment factor. They're just like little quiggling little nitpicks here and there. So I'm actually going to go higher on the rewatch on the watchability. I'm going to go with a nine out of 10 instead mm. of eight and a half, just because it's, you know, like I said, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot faster. It's a lot zippier. It's, you know, a lot more of a faster paced film. And mm. I'm definitely going to give this a buy just because, you know, it's a lot more fun just it's just as much fun as the original in a sense, but yeah, like I said, uh, fun time. And like I said, I have, uh, Glenn's or Will's ratings here. Once mm-hmm. again, he's the lowest out of all of us. He had this at a six, a six and a buy. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, um, really wanted him on here to help uh, explain some of these ratings. <laughs> yeah. Well, can I ask a question, Don? Yeah. Because I almost kind of feel like my my nine on the first one is not really, but 
is a little too high. But I mean, can, is it wrong to put too much emphasis on what he did as a director? And the the I mean, that first film was I mean, it helped. He was part a major part of a boom of horror in Spain and with Paul Nashie, of course, and uh, uh, well, I guess uh, who else is in there? Jesse Franco, is he in there? Uh, uh, no, because Franco would have... Who did Orloff? Who did the... Which one? The horrible art... Dr. Uh, that's Franco. That's Franco, but that was earlier in the 60s. Because Frank uh, right. Franco had left. He had left to go to France. Okay. Because that's when, cause that's when he did. A, he had a few films in uh, Spain at the time, but he moved to France because it was more liberating. Was his movie considered the first horror movie, though? Of a yeah, the, the horrible, the one from yeah. 1962. Yeah, the horrible Doctor Orloff. I think that is Spain. His first horror film, or at least the first one that's surviving. I think. I I think that's probably a little bit a little bit more of an act. Accurate term is um, older surviving one because I don't know if there's er- earlier ones than that. So is it wrong to to lay so much? I mean, uh, I don't know. So much, you know, what a director was able to do considering the time he's working in, and and I just find the first film amazing that he just he created that. I, just, I don't no, know. You're you're totally entitled to your. Own. An opinion. Um, I mean, like I said, I'm right there with you. I, I'm really high on the film as well. And I mean, yeah, you know, the only other person working in Spain doing this is Nashi, so he's right there with him in terms of being, you know, like a figurehead for the movement in this in the country. So I, I, I do see where you're coming from. I'm, you know, whatever you're using to, whatever you use is fine with me. So yeah, I don't have much of an issue do with that if you want to use that for your for your ratings that's fine with me so okay so uh with that we are at the halfway point of this let's take a short little break and to to fill the time let's crank some tunes and let's go with the obvious choice necrophagia with their song excommunicated the tent brought back the secret of eternal life from the Orient. When the villagers learned of their human sacrifices to the devil, they burned out their eyes so they could never find their way back. Oh, they'll come back tonight. Yes, I know. I can't see. Oh, but I can hear everything. Tonight, the Templars will get their revenge.
our third film of the evening, 1974's The Ghost Galleon. We're here! Hey! Hey! Help hey. us out! Help! Come, Come on. on! I've covered an area 50 square miles and found nothing. Over. Well, I guess we're going to have to check out their course by boat. How could they disappear to thin air? Maybe it's true the Phantom Ship does exist. Ghost Galleon. This book is the daily navigational guide the captain had on board the ship more than two centuries ago. Sinister ship condemned to sail eternally. You're not going anywhere. You'll stay here and do as you're told. Let me go. You mustn't do that to her. Keep out of this, Lil. You're involved enough in this already. What at the beginning was only a legend turned into the most horrible reality. Ghost Galleon. Maria Pershi. Jack Taylor. Barbara Ray. Carlos Lemos. Manuel de Blas. Blanca Estrada, in Ghost Galleon. You want me to do it? I told you I'm scared. <laughs> Five human beings with selfish passions find themselves aboard a ship sailing through a night without end. <laughs> oh, would you? You said you would. Oh, come on, now cut it out. And I could learn to do all the important things, like uh, fixing my hair. And I could learn to be just like you. It seemed like a nightmare. The death which came to them one by one forced them to accept the horrible reality. I told you they wouldn't try to do it. And yet, they tried. And now, like all the rest of them, they disappeared. Just uh, like magic. An important film. I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm getting out of here. The most horrifying sacrifices in unimaginable circumstances in the middle of the ocean. Death was at the end of this adventure. Ghost Galleon. Murder! Help! Somebody help me, they've got me. Ghost Galleon. It's coming directly at us. The ship's gonna hit us. Uh, anybody have an IMDb for this one? or I, I got it. Go ahead. This, this should be good. Now, this one is is interesting because there are multiple ones to choose from, but I think I, I found what might be the best one, so I'll just run with it. Uh, when a publicity stunt of two models on a boat goes horribly wrong and the two get lost in a fog, they end up on a creaky floating tomb of the blind dead. That's right. These seagoing Templars make short work of the supermodels and move along. The head of the modeling agency and a group of employees start looking for the babes to meet the Templars, pirates, but can they escape the fate of the models or will they too succumb to the monsters of the deep? Yeah, there you go. Um, I don't know. Not that I really think about it. <laughs> it really isn't that good either. None of these have been really that good. Um. He's a boat salesman, isn't he? 
Yeah, I and think that's... Yeah, and he's using the models. Yeah, I think that's too. why he hired them. Yeah. yeah. Trying to sell a, a super line of new boats. Yeah. <laughs> All right, anyone want to take this one first? Yeah, I'll take it. All right, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I've always had a real soft spot for this movie. I mean, I I know it's not the greatest movie ever made, but you know, it's it, it's it's aquatic horror with the blind dead, and that's reason enough for me. I love it. I really do. I mean, it won't show in my ratings, but. It's probably the one I watch the most. Hmm. I like the idea of 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 being stuck on a boat. You know, like I said, I like the idea of aquatic horror. And this just I don't know. It, it's just neat seeing the blind dead who you're so used to seeing coming out of like coffins and like in the cemetery and everything, you know, coming up from a boat. Because, I mean, where are you going to go? You're on a boat. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it goes into that whole weird, like, uh, you know, how can I put it? Like, almost like alternate dimension type stuff. You've heard that, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's a bit far fetched. Well, obviously, what and, and uh, you know, undead Templars coming back isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I just find it to be a very charming movie. Not overly scary, not overly graphic, but there's a charm that I love. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, I'm actually kind of glad you went first because I'm gonna echo a lot of that. I'm actually a huge fan of this one. Uh, I I really think this one's massively underrated. I I do like the idea that they try to employ a little bit more of the gothic atmosphere here, where they're mm. you know they're transporting everything from the cemeteries and the crypts and the decayed ruins, and they put it on a ship. Where mm. you get like the long yearly shots of the two models going through the, like the long hallways and like the bank the corners and all the you know the holds where they have all the grips with all the coffins. Mm-hmm. I really find a lot of that really creepy, and I really like the atmosphere that this brings up. Mm-hmm. I do enjoy like what you said, the idea of trapping them in this in the ship. Like there's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. My main issue. And this is one that I actually kind of came up with when I was rewatching this, mm-hmm. is that the Templars just sort of disappear for like seventy percent of where we get them in the opening where they attack the one girl on the ship, and then we get them all bunched in at the end. Mm-hmm. But then there's nothing in the middle. Like the entire middle section of the film is just them exploring the ship and trying to find out what's going on. Yeah. That to me is my main issue with this is that it's a lot of scenes of them without really the, the Templars themselves. They're not being on screen, which is sort of weird in that you know you look at the, the 
second one return and they're on screen pretty much since the beginning of the movie and they can carry the entire film. So I can only imagine that it was really a budgetary thing, which kind of makes sense giving, you know, the last shot of the film, Mm. which we'll get to in a bit. We'll get to that. (laughs) We'll get to that. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I can only imagine that there was really like a budgetary thing to keep them from not being on screen more often because they disappear for like nearly 70% of the movie where it's just, you know, okay, well, where did the girls go? What happened to them? You know, like, what's this publicity stuff you're talking about? What's going on? Oh, mm-hmm. wait a second. Where's this strange body of water? And what's all these legends about sunken ships and strange disappearances going on in this area well let's go take a look for ourselves oh wait a second is that ship it let's go on board and find out (laughs) and it's just like these i mean yeah okay you want to build the storyline you want to get the idea of what's where they're at and everything but you don't see them at all and there's like two it's like almost too small of a group that went on board to go searching for them like you maybe needed like maybe a couple more just like have some bodies to pick off Mm -hmm. so but but yeah it's like they t- kind of disappear for large portions of the film. And it's a real shame because, you know, the two main scenes that they're in, which, you know, the big scene where they're chasing the first girl through the, through the, you know, hull of the ship where they've got all the coffins laid out and they're, you know, like just mm-hmm. barely missing when they're grabbing at her. That's some creepy stuff. I mean, that's incredibly tense and chilling. Mm-hmm. And, you get the fun finale where they're like rampaging through the ship and they're like, you know, slashing and stalking and getting everybody they can. Mm. But that's like really all that you get. with mm. And it's one of the, my main issues is that you don't really get them in action as much as they really should. Mm. I, I, I get the idea of wanting to do something different, but I don't know if you needed to sacrifice as much screen time with them as you, as they do here. But yeah, overall, yeah, I'm totally agreeing with you. I do think this is underrated. I do think it's a little unfairly persecuted just because of a few areas, let's just say. But overall, yeah, I really enjoy this one, and I, I have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's go to you, Rob. I'm with you guys with a lot of it. And a lot of it is budgetary. I mean, he talks about, I've heard him talk about how that he really just had budget slashed on this to epic proportion, which is really... Shame, shameful in a way. I mean, it's. I love. There's nothing more that I love. You know, aside from my island horror, I love ghost ship horror. I love being on a ship. You know, and just you can't go in. Like you guys said, you can't go anywhere. You're sort of trapped there. Mm-hmm. And to take this mythology that you've already so you know somewhat established in varying ways. You know, in the first two films, and to lay in the in the in this very atmospheric, creaky holes of this old galleon that may have just come out of another dimension and is just floating there. Um, I think it just holds so much opportunity to do so many incredible things and to think that a lot of those things that he may have done um, was stripped away from him just because he wasn't allowed to, you know, with not having the the money he needed. Um mm-hmm. Which, which is funny because, and we'll, we'll get there, but I mean, it's funny because you'll see a huge rebound with the fourth film in terms of the money and in terms of the support from his producers um, to put more into it. And it's really a shame because this one does have a lot of, 
uh, it is underrated. It has a lot of good things going for it. I mean, just being in the holes of that ship, just the atmosphere. I mean, he said, I think he only had like half a ship to work with that they had built. And what they did build, I mean, is, is phenomenal what they built for the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and this might be one of the, it has elements of being one of the best ghost ship movies. You know, I just love, I love to uh, have fun with it and to watch it. And at the same time, though, it's agonizing because I keep thinking what this movie could have been had he been allowed uh, to have a freer reign, you know, with, you know, with the resources, you know, yeah. to, do, to do what he wanted. And, you know, and I think a story on that 10 minute doc, I think he said something or you know, he said something to the effect that, um, that the captain of this ship in his mind, and I don't think it was ever fleshed out in the movie, mm. but the, the, the captain apparently because of his, uh, atrocities in the Holy land, that he basically was cursed to wander the oceans, I guess, forever, uh, eternally. And I don't think that, it's funny, he says that, but I don't think that ever really came up in the, in the, in the narrative of the, of the story. I don't think we ever get that mentioned at all anywhere, which would have been a great, it would have been a great way of dealing with another element of, because uh, isn't this the, this is the only movie that really doesn't show us um, the blind dead, or you know, before they're blind dead, right? Uh, yeah, because yeah. I don't, because this one doesn't really give them a new backstory. Yeah. And I wonder if a lot of that was budgetary. I wonder if he would have had the money, we would have got another variation of, well, here's their story. Here's what this cat, you know, here's what this captain did. It was so horrible that this is what has sort of, you know, cast him out into the sea as a ghost, and he can't, you know. Him and his ship crew can never, uh, you know, escape it. Sort of, although you know, it's sort of a twist on that at the end, I guess. <laughs> um, but I, 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 you know, so I, I do like you, Blend. You said I think you said it perfectly. I, I definitely have a soft, soft spot in here, and I hate it when it gets so trash because when you know all the other side of the story of why it is, you know, mm-hmm. it's frustrating. Yeah. All right, Alfonso. Uh, uh, yeah, this is one uh, I never understood why people hated it so much. Uh, I like this one. Uh, I don't even mind the Templars not being in it as much as the other movies. Uh, the set design on the ship is amazing. It's it's uh, it has a bunch of atmosphere. I don't really get the whole uh, model agency thing story, but I guess you got to get to the ship somehow. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, uh, I really I really like this film. Uh, I used to not be too high on it, but more recent viewings, uh, I grew to appreciate it more. Cool. Uh, uh yeah. Um, what you said earlier—that's one of the other things I wanted to bring bring up. The whole idea of the publicity stunts to get them into the ship in the first first place seriously you have a multi-million dollar marketing campaign and that's the campaign you came up with (laughs) yeah i mean okay yeah you can probably come up with any other kind of uh, um plot device to get them out there and they're supposed to do a special on survival by being stranded out in the middle of the sea 
and then all of a sudden just happen happen across any ship that you know is in the water and say, oh, we we survived simply because we only had this guy's boat with us for all this time. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the idea to supposedly sell this kind of whatever the hell thingies whatever they're trying to sell. Yeah, you see, that's the sort of thing that would work more in like a, a modern narrative, like with the whole like viral marketing and everything. But at the time, I mean, that's not how you marketed things back then. Yeah. I, yeah, no, I mean, I can totally see that. You know, you drop, you know, maybe like, you know, I mean, God forbid I actually know the person's name, but you drop Kylie Jenner in that kind of a situation and <laughs> that's the outcome of it. Okay, yeah, you're going to get a lot of publicity on that kind of thing. <laughs> All right. I didn't mean to joke that much. How do you feel guy on a man? Oh my god, that was funny. <laughs> we know it's funny. It's almost it's almost as awkward as uh as Virginia just jumping off the train. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you have to figure a way to get out there, so I mean this was the way he, he did it. Um <laughs> I think they could have just done it a much easier way, and they could have made it like they were actually stranded out there. You know, like they sent them out for a photo shoot, and they actually did get stranded. Yeah. It would have made more sense than this whole, you know, it's like a publicity stunt and everything. It's like, yeah, come on. I just can't help but think yeah. Kylie Jenner out there and uh, <laughs> gets picked up by the ghost galleon and they'll be like, okay, got one of them. Let's get the rest <laughs> out there, too. Also, I don't get uh, why couldn't they have another boat shadow them in case something went wrong, you know? Uh, or yeah, that, that's what any normal person would have done, yeah. Yeah, but then I mean, wouldn't that have sort of like given the thing away if you have just like a you know like a sec- if you have this the idea is that you know there's this one boat out in the middle of nowhere, and then you know some other boat get pick comes up and picks them up, and then and then, you know they say oh well you know we've been stranded for days we couldn't have survived if we didn't have this vessel that we're in, <laughs> then you know having like the secondary you know, zoom off into the distance just because, okay, well, they're saying, you know, like, my job's done. Like, that would kind of, like, defeat the purpose, kind of. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, but also, why, I mean, are the two girls are just, it's just the two girls in the boat, right? On the, the two models? Right. Like, are yeah. they really going to believe that it's just, uh, they could, they could uh, take the boat out by themselves without, like, somebody else more experienced than them, or I, I don't. I, I just don't get. It. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would have. I mean, like you said, it would have been. It would have made more sense if they actually would have planned it as like a fake publicity stunt, where, you know, okay, you have like a maybe like a photographer on board with them to sort of like be like their gatekeeper, sort of. Yeah. And he, just like you know, the one that's driving around. But oh well, we you know we got stranded. We ended up we, you know, in a haste trying to fix everything, we ended up breaking our you know our radio and we can't raise anyone so you know we've been stranded out here for days now we you know thanks to surviving inside this raft we were able to you know get out of this alive mm. 
like that would make a lot more sense. Like, oh, you know, okay, we have this other guy with us. He knows what he's doing. He's taking us on a shoot, but we ran out of gas. We, you know, in our haste trying to fix it, we ended up breaking the radio and, you know, we're stuck out here for these, you know, like three or four days. But this raft that we were in was able to save us. Like, mm. okay, that would be a lot more of an effective you know, publicity stunt to, yeah, have somebody else that would actually have been able to get them out of the situation if they knew what they were doing, but either like incapacitate them somehow or mm-hmm. do something that, you know, like, you know, okay, well, you know, we, we tried to fix it. We ended up, we couldn't, we ended up breaking it. And so now we're stuck out here with no water, no gas, no nothing. But because of the boat, we were able to survive. Yeah, I can understand that being a little bit more of a realistic scenario, but. It all of this just goes to show what a harebrained idea this marketing campaign is. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that we're calling it a marketing campaign when you know it was just that guy. It was like, let's put some models in a boat and throw them out there. Yeah, he's like, we'll say they lost in a week out there just in my boat. <laughs> no, I wonder if um, it, had he had the money to uh, you know pump into the galleon and just all the things that he would have done. I wonder if, if uh, the getting on the boat would have been a lot more simpler uh, in, you know, say, you know, it's Jack Taylor, right? He's the guy, he's the actor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know maybe he's, uh, you know, maybe he's in charge of some kind of fishing expedition and his yacht and they run afoul of this galleon out in the middle of the fog and that's sort of how you get there. If he's able to fill up the rest of his time with a great preface, you know, showing us what these knights did and then spending a lot more time having a lot more fun on the ship. But because you can't do that, you got to, you got to kind of come up with something that is as awkward as Virginia jumping off the train, but you know, you've got this company and you got this publicity thing. And of course, and then, you know, don't forget there's another lovely rape, you know, attempted or was an attempted rape scene. No, uh, I think that was, I think that was an that was an actual rape scene because she ends up getting away okay. and then they go they go back again. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of rape. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, it's like that's just kind of how they do it. That's how they roll well, down in Spain. I wonder. I wonder how much of you know. I, well, I've read that a lot of the the, the sexual stuff in the movies is at this period in Spain was a reaction to, again, them being able to flex their muscles, you know, in, in a world that they were starting for the first time to be able to do things on film that they, they you know, couldn't do forever under that regime. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, we've been saying that, I mean, I don't know if we've ever really said so on here, but, yeah, at this sort of, at this period in time in Spain, the <clears throat> dictators, the you know Franco's regime and the censors, the censorship board. They were so strict that violence against Spanish people was considered outlawed, and that's actually the reason why I, when Nashi did his um, his werewolf films, that's the entire reason why the character is Waldemar Daninsky. It's a Polish <laughs> name because that's the reason why the film that's the only reason they could get the film past the censors was it's a oh. Polish person rather <laughs> than a Spanish. That's the entire reason why they, they gave that character the name Waldemar Daninsky. They couldn't get it past 
cast the censors if it was a Spanish person, so they made up an entire diff- so they made him a different nationality just to get it past the the censorship board. You That's also the reason why the first film is set in Portugal. Right. Because if you actually the we I don't know I, I forgot to mention this. The town that they they're from called Berzano. That's mm-hmm. an actual. That's an actual place in Portugal. It's about maybe fifty miles from the border. There's an actual town in Portugal called Berzano, and it's like maybe fifty miles from the border, so it's like an hour away. Mm. And that was the reason why they chose to set the film there was because the action's happening in Portugal. It's not happening in Spain. They got away with it from the Spencers at the time. <laughs> You know that's really that's really funny too because you you, you made me remember when you're saying that um, <clears throat> on the his uh, there's a film historian on the uh, Criterion edition of Godzilla and he talks about how during that period of film filming uh, history in Japan they were not allowed to show their military being used for anything I think other than defending their own homeland mm-hmm. yeah. and so. Because you have Godzilla and all that, so they're able to get away with that. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, that, that, well, that wasn't the Japanese thing. That was the American occupying forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was still the American forces that were occupying Japan at the time. That was the reason for the military thing. Um, I think that loosened up by the time the sequels came out. But yeah, when the original was there, the American military was still very, very, very heavily into that sort of thing. Um, yeah, they ended up in... Uh, I mean, not to get off subject, we'll get, I'll get back to Spanish War in just a second, but they ended up, and they ended up, the American forces, they ended up banding, banning almost every single one of the Japanese propaganda movies from, from like, the early 40s, simply because, one, they actually thought the effects were realistic, that they didn't realize that it was actually miniature effects. <laughs> but the other thing was that it was showing <clears throat> Japanese forces as actionary instead of being like defensive. Was That was like one of their big things is that, you know, no, you can't do this. You can't show your military in that kind of a light. But yeah, a lot of it was also the fact that they misidentified the fact that they were actually models and, you know, miniature effect work. <laughs> and they actually mistakenly believe that many of those effect shots were taken directly from cameras on the planes that they that were in battle at the time. <laughs> yeah, there's tons of I, there's tons of stories about you know the special effects director you know it's AJ Subaraya. He mentioned in numerous interviews that he was blacklisted you know by the American military, not by the Japanese film companies, but by the American military. Because they believed his effects were so realistic that they came from cameras mounted in the planes during the attack sequences when they were fake- making these movies, and that they were promoting the glorif- promoting and glorifying Japanese military might instead of American. You know, they they wanted you know them to be more, more of like a defensive force rather than an offensive force. So, yeah, no, that's sort of like a similar situation. So, yeah. <laughs> But uh, anyways, yeah, back to, you know, the well, Templars, yeah. 
Yeah, it is interesting though the role of sensors and or and why they do what they do. It's just interesting. Yeah. But yeah, no, that like I said, that was like the Spanish regime at the time. You know, censored violence and all of that. You know, salacious sex and nudity, and basically to, they kept it <clears throat> straightforward, and they kept it very like. Not necessarily like right wing in a sense, but like very, very, very drawn out and laid back. Very like they kept a really tight hammer on everything, and they wouldn't they wouldn't allow any of that stuff to go through. So yeah, you can see by, by you know not just these films, but you can actually see a lot of you know like Nashi's films at the time. You look at a lot of the films from like seventy three, seventy four, seventy five. They're incredibly more brutal than they were in, like you know, seventy one, seventy two, just because you can see that, you know, Franco's influence is waning because of his health is in decline, so that's why you start seeing a lot of these you know films being added into, you know, extra nudity, extra violence, all of this extra stuff that they couldn't have gotten away with earlier because now all of a sudden it's like a brand new toy that they can play with and add to their films and add add that extra element you know maybe you know you have this extra rape scene and you'll get like a few more people into seats because you're getting this salacious material that they haven't been able to see before and now you can so yeah it became you know very much of you know a tool for exploitation and all of those kinds of tactics mm-hmm. and and I mean, you know, you look at, I mean, France was allowing horror porn into their films in like 1970, 71. So, you know, like you see a lot, you see that happening a lot in Europe at the time. You see, you know, a lot of the Italian films, they start getting a lot more brutal and violent as the 70s go on. So, yeah, it's not just, you know, in Spain, but I mean, you know, we're looking predominantly at Spanish movies. That's definitely the case. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think we've uh, danced around this long enough. Let's uh, uh, talk about that ship, shall we? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, holy floating bathtub, <laughs> bathtub <laughs> shots. <laughs> Uh, if ever there was a special floaty device for <laughs> floaty set on fire, that was it. Well, I don't yeah. know what hurts more, to actually watch it on the TV screen or to listen to Osorio talk about it, because it, it hurt him bad, I think. Just, you know, not being able to create what really he wanted to create, and it's, you know, ugh. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that looks exactly like uh, it. It really is. I mean, there's like no denying it. It's a it's a model sunk in a bath. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no question. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, any thoughts on the finale with them uh, getting to shore and still being chased? I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, I, I, you know, the fact that 
everything they'd gone through and it just still didn't work. It's kind of really the when you when you really think about it, it's it's a really dark ending. Darker than part one, or no? It's about on par with it for like you know. Well, I find it I find it interesting that the the girl there with him at the end, you know, if you listen to you know when she you know schemes up her brilliant idea that if things just don't go the way that they ought to go, well, they could just throw everyone off everyone overboard. I mean, she was a little more diabolical than than the Jack Taylor character there. Hmm. I mean, she was pretty twisted there. I mean, she didn't care. Just get rid of them. No one will know. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So I, I finally I find it fitting that, you know, towards the end there, they're on the beach thinking they got, got away and uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> great scene. That's great. But there is one question. Where, who, what were those knights? The ones on the beach? Because all of them were still down in the hull when the when the professor set the bomb off, right? No, did they throw the coffins overboard? They threw them into the sea. No, they threw the the uh, the uh, the unoccupied ones, but they didn't throw the occupied ones into the sea. They, uh, they threw they threw the they threw the unoccupied ones. They threw the blank ones into the sea. Didn't they, or did they oh, throw? I, I, well, I'm, I'm not sure now. I just assumed uh, they got rid of them. They got they they were in the coffins. I always sort of assumed that because yeah. they felt they were they were, you know because you get a little bit of dialogue there on the ship that almost sound, sort of makes it seem like well you know if it wasn't for this boat you know now yeah because I mean they said uh, the professor makes the uh, he alludes to this idea that now that the knights are off this ship the ship's falling apart. And it's not going to last long. So they right, gotta, but and he yeah, can't get off because he can't swim. Right, because he's making the right. That's why he's the one that starts the fire and burns the ship up. But my my thing was is that did they ever mention that the coffins that they threw overboard were occupied or unoccupied? Because I never remember. I, one, I never remember them checking, and two, I never <clears> remember they actually made mention of. Okay, let's you know make sure that they can't get away. You know, we're gonna throw the coffins that you know. Okay, they're out and about on the ship. We're they're they can't get to us. We're gonna throw them overboard so they can't get to it, and then we're gonna set the ship on fire with them inside it, so they'll burn up, and that's how we're gonna get rid of them. I think the uh, coffins were empty because exactly yeah yeah because I think that's how they thought uh, this is how we can get rid of them so they can't come back or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is that they were the empty coffins, so then if they're throwing the empty coffins over and the rest of them are on board the ship, where did the ones from the beach come from? Or is that a separate separate yeah, set of Templars that we've never seen before? Uh, yeah, I don't... Because uh, 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 the, the ship is supposed to be another dimension, right? Right, yeah. yeah. So and all then, the all the Templars stuck getting burnt up. Uh, yeah, I don't know where they come from. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the one thing, is that where where did they, what, you know, what batch of Templars were these? Like, were mm-hmm. they already in our dimension this entire time, and they were, like, unable to get back to the ship, or did they escape the burning ship? Because 
you know, I don't know if they can swim. Uh-huh. But yeah, I that's that was one of the one things that for me when I first watched it I was like, where did they come from? Like, which batch were they? Because they threw the empty coffins overboard and then they set the ship on fire because that's the entire plan. Mm-hmm. But then, what batch is the ones coming out on the beach? Maybe like uh, it's I don't I don't know. Maybe they weren't all, uh, yeah. Like maybe not all the Templars were up. Maybe just a certain amount got up. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, better explanation than anything I came up with. So. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe now that there's no longer a boat, the Templars like. How can I put it? Like they're not stuck in the dimension or whatever. Yeah. Mm. Could, it could be. I don't know. <laughs> I've said before, this is a movie that could do with a reboot. Re- reboot this one and explain everything. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Or do what, you know, Osorio could have done and, you know, put them on screen more often. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I wonder, now, on the Ghost Galleon, there isn't, like the first two films, there's not an English and a Spanish version, right? Yeah, there's no real differences. Um, yeah, it's the same cut, just... Uh, yeah. There, well, there's, like, ten different different um alternate names for it but yeah. that's it there's no um like alt, there's like no real changes between them because like with the with the first one they they shipped out like almost all of the gore and violence and they re-spliced the flashback sequence to be the prologue instead of occurring halfway through the movie where and then in the second one they shipped out all of the the sequence is explaining that the hunchback is the one responsible and they turn it into it being like the celebrations raised them from the grave because mm. those are like the main like variations and cuts between the two whereas with this one and the next one they're kind of just like left alone and there's like no real discrepancies between them mm. that's, that's interesting I wonder, I wonder if anything the uh because I know the professor has a, quite a bit of dialogue towards the end, and I just wonder if he doesn't say anything that, when listening really carefully to, doesn't shed a little bit of light. That somehow passed right by me, I guess. I just assume they got thrown over, and they're resting on the bottom of the sea comfortably, and then decide, wait a minute, job's not done. <laughs> Let's go get them. Yeah. Like, damn it, you ain't getting away. (laughs) (laughs) Plot hole? Is that a plot hole? (laughs) Could be. (laughs) All right. So, uh, yeah, once again, anybody have any uh, parting words or final thoughts they want to bring up? Uh, The Templars really don't like music, because I think this one, uh, they they wake up to this too, right? The music playing? 
the radio? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. I I I think I'm right. It's completely just to like damn you kids with your loud music. <laughs> yeah. They're just pissed off old guys. That's all they really are. Just trying to get rid of everybody's music, I guess. Yeah. It's like, damn it, back in my day, we didn't listen to this stuff. <laughs> all right, anyone else? No, that's not. No, I was just talking. Right, so let's uh, go ahead with our scores. Uh, Glenn, let's start with you. For me, it's uh, an 8 all around. Uh, rewatchability, this is a complete 10. Because like I said, I watched this movie the most of all of them. And buy or rent, definitely a buy. Because, you know. Let's be honest, all of these movies are buys. <laughs> Okay, Rob. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm about on this one just because of all the, and I know there are budgetary reasons and 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 some of the things that we talked about. I, I think I'm, I think I'm good at a, at a seven five on this one with a. But I, I would say it's uh, at least an eight, eight, ouch, eight five out of ten. No, I would say a nine rewatchability, and definitely, definitely buy it off. All right, and Alfonso. Uh, I'm gonna go eight all around. Uh, overall, nine rewatchability and a definite buy. All right, yep. yeah, I'm uh, exactly there with Rob. I'm seven and a half. Um, I'd probably say maybe an eight, maybe, uh, like bet- uh, I'm still debating the seven and a half to an eight on rewatchability. So yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call it and say seven and a half across the board, and I'm definitely gonna say bye. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Will's the lowest out of all of us on these films. <laughs> Wait until you hear his shit. Two out of ten on watch. What? Holy shit. <laughs> it gets better. Rewatch. One out of ten. <laughs> oh. And he gives this one a rent. Oh, damn. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I, will say, I will say this. I will say this. I will defend Will on one thing. It, if you're not a completist and you don't care about having the entire franchise, if there's one out of the entire bunch that you would rent, it, it would be this one. But it, it is, it is. I think a franchise that is worthy of having together. But yeah. that's the only thing I could say. There. That is the. The, the atmosphere on the ship is just—it's too much fun. I mean. mm. Yeah, I'm—I'm I'm there with you. I—I I definitely agree. But uh, yeah, let's uh, <laughs> close things up with our final film this evening, 
1975's Night of the Seagulls. A new terror fills the screen with horror. The Night of the Seagulls. Where are these women going, dressed in mourning, leading a young girl to sacrifice? <laughs> Mystery surrounds the horsemen from the ancient past. The Night of the Seagulls. I said you're free. Then Eddie here, get away, sir. You just said they died six centuries ago. I'm being given up to them so others may be saved. Hurry, you must get away, sir. I won't leave you here. could stand up against the cruelty and the fanaticism of the dead horsemen. The Night of the Seagulls. With Maria Costi, Victor Petit, Sandra Mozorowski, Julie James. The Night of the Seagulls. What's that? A beast of the sea. It must be a god belonging to some unknown culture. What's going to happen to us now? I don't know. But this idol is responsible for all the sacrifices. Directed by Armando de Osorio. A Pro Films and Ancla Century Films co-production. So, uh, Rob, if you've uh, got IMDb for this one, let's uh, well, actually, go Actually, I'm going to read off the back of my box because this is, my favorite, this is my favorite one out of the whole group. Smart move. Here we go. When a doctor and his wife move to a coastal village, they encounter strange and terrifying things. The town harbors an ancient evil that demands ritual sacrifice. For seven consecutive nights, the undead come from the sea to demand a horrific... Death, yeah, I just got that. Deaths of the town's young women. Dr. Stein and his wife try to save one of the young women from her horrible fate. The final tale of the Blind Dead series comes to a haunting end. Off the screen factory, back of the box. Not bad. So, let's uh, dive into these. Um, I think everybody, who hasn't gone first with their thoughts yet? Because I think every I uh, Rob, I think called on. Okay, Rob, you haven't gone first, so let's nope, uh, start nope. with you. How appropriate! This is my favorite one. Um, <laughs> I absolutely, I know Glenn's laughing right now because we, mm-hmm. we had a little interchange of comments, and I, I didn't want to come right out and say it then. But um, God, this is uh, this is 
you know, part and parcel of all of the films. I mean, this is another variant of Osorio just saying, you know what, here, let's let's do this. And it's the only one of the of the four that sort of moves away from the satanic mythology that encourages the Templar knights in their eternal, you know, striving for eternal life. Um, and it, it roots it in love, more of a Lovecraft. Um, in fact, there's a very heavy uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth vibe. And I love how this movie, uh, you know, is a coast, you know, takes place right on the seashore. You've got the, the sacrifices at night. You've got a... Uh, a, t- a town, a village, sea-, sea village that has decided to basically sell sell its soul to the devil, uh, per se, just to keep their town protected. And so it's worth giving up seven uh, of their virgins every seven years uh, in order to maintain uh, this sort of safe harbor from these Templars who, of course, would just raise their village to the ground if they don't get what uh, they want. And just the dynamics, I, I, you know, with the casting, the writing, I think, I think it's easily his most polished film from start mm-hmm. to end. I think it looks, uh, the screen factor transfer is phenomenal. I just love the overall vibe. I love, it, everything seems to run so smooth, um, even with uh, how uh, the new doctor is there replacing the other one, how they come in and, um, and they're sort of, you know, well, he's sort of on the slow on it, but, you know, his wife is, like, almost immediate, like, I don't want to be here. This is way too weird. And, you know, they're tripped down to the seashore, and he, you know, him just chucking it off is, uh, well, it's probably just a cultural or ritual thing, you know, nothing to be worried about. And, of course, you know, things will turn worse for the worse. Um, I love it. I love the vibe. I love the start to the end of this. I love how it ends. Uh, I just, I, I think, had he been able to get his fifth film, um, depending on what variation of what he has said in the past, one thing I think he has said is uh, that he was going to push the Lovecraft uh, notion even further. And I just, I wonder what that would have looked like um, had he gone. But I love this film. I just love the characters. I love how everything just, I think it's, like I said, the most polished of the four. And I absolutely love it. Mm. All right. So uh, I guess with that, uh, Glenn, let's uh, get your thoughts. Okay. (laughs) This is my least favorite of the entire series. (laughs) And what it is for me is the fact, you know, maybe had I, if I'd gone into this movie wanting to see a Lovecraft film, I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more. But like like I like I said earlier, you know, when I watch these movies, you know, I watch them like in order. I'm like all at once kind of thing. Um it doesn't feel like a blind dead movie. It feels like Shadow over Innsmouth. I I get the feeling that he wanted to make a Lovecraftian movie. And they said to him, uh, the producers essentially said to him, you know, we want another Blind Dead movie. And he was like, no, okay. And he just kind of stuck the Blind Dead in. Instead of, like, you know, making, like, a whole other Blind Dead story. He's like, I'm going to make this one I was going to make, 
but I'll put the blind dead in it. At least that's how it seems to me. Technically, it is the the most polished of all of all of them. I mean, you you can't you can't say that it isn't. It's the it's technically the best of all four, but I I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like a blind dead movie to me. Yep. All right, so uh, Fonso, let's go with you. Uh, pretty much everything that Glenn says uh, said I agree with. Uh, it doesn't feel like a Blind Dead movie. In, I don't mind it. Uh, it's not my favorite. Uh, I think it would have been way better without the Templars. Uh, probably a more interesting movie. Uh, the nighttime scenes are weird. I don't know if it's—I don't know if it was just the copy that I watched, but no, like, that's the film. That's what yeah, we've been—yeah, uh, we've been talking about that all night. Yeah, no, this is the day for night crap that we've been mentioning all night long. That's not you. That's the film. That's—it's uh, supposed to be nighttime. The entire film is supposed to take place around midnight. Yeah, it looks like they just smeared like Vaseline on the camera lens or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, like I said earlier, the the film is supposed to take place at midnight. Now, put that into context with what happens on screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's. Uh... Um, I... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, uh, go ahead. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't have anything new to add to it. Uh, Glenn pretty much said everything. That I was gonna say, uh, I agree with him. But yeah, that's about it. All right. Um, so for me, I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, I'm not as against it as Glenn is, but I'm not as in love with it as Rob is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do like a lot of what's going on here. I like the small town mystery. I as much as I appreciate the you know. The you know the deviation at sea, it just feels right seeing them you know emerge from their crypts and riding on horseback in super slow motion. <laughs> I I miss that stuff. I, you know that's them. That's like you know their thing. That's what I've come to associate with these films. And re- getting them once again, I, I do enjoy that, and I do feel like that's you know like greatly that was greatly missed in the in the other one. I do like the idea of this you know Lovecraftian mystery about this town you know the this pervading evil overwhelming everybody but man is there some really sloppy work in here I don't know about you guys the ending to this is just an absolute fucking joke I don't know man I, I like the ending I, I, I dug it okay um here I have two main issues with one that's all it took to stop them <laughs> like you know one you know they're outsiders they would have had no way of knowing that this would have actually worked again you know versus the people that do you know the townspeople that live there they would have had an idea that 
this would have, you know, they would have known better that this would have actually worked. So I can see that they would have done something like, you know, they could have tried this earlier, but then they choose sacrifice, you know, once a week every year till the Templars and they don't raise the town. But then the entire thing is just, it's over that quickly, you know, we get like one little meltdown sequence, and then the film just erupts, the film just ends, like, abruptly. Mm. Like, there's no, like, there's, it, it's just like a, you know, it's just a thing that happens. Like, they happen upon it accidentally, they just luck into it, it works out, and then the film just ends. And, mm. yeah, I, I'm really just, I'm not a fan of this ending. The day for night stuff, like I said, you know, the entire film is supposed to take place at midnight. Keep that in mind, folks. Yeah. The entire film is supposed to take place at midnight because that's when they were supposed to be sacrificed. That's when the that's where all the processions are supposed to take place. The entire mm-hmm. film is supposed to take place around midnight, people. Keep that in mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what those day for night stuff that I've been complaining about all shows finally going to be about that's, you know, that shows up here, but by and large, it's one of those. I do enjoy, you know, the, I, I do like the Lovecraftian feel of it. I like that. There's a sense of tying it in because, you know, you get this plus you get all of the, you know, the return to the, the Templars and their former selves, but it's just one of those. I, I don't like a, a lot of the sloppiness that comes in with the writing. Mm. You know, villagers with their secrets and you know, just being secretive and not really, you know, like they're the villagers to me are just as bad as the Templars are. You know, like, like I said, they're completely complicit in giving into the Templars just based on one little incident and yet they've never, you know, tried to stop them, is just, which is just as simple as these outsiders who have no way of knowing and they just managed to stumble upon it and it works out. So mm. why they didn't try this years earlier and get out of it themselves. But I just, I don't see where they come off with, you know, the treatment on the, you know, special person. <laughs> like that whole subplot, I, it just, it goes nowhere for me. I don't really understand where that comes from. Because it's the exact same ploy that they did in part two. Like, mm. you know, it's the same thing again. You know, it's the village weirdo that nobody really likes. and Everybody picks on and, you know, they visibly throw stones at him. And they push him off a cliff trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I like I'm supposed to fear for these people to get out of the, you know, Templar's wrath. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but yep. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those. I'm kind of like in the middle of where you guys are with this one, so. Mm-hmm. See, I think I think if I had if I had a criticism that's probably not so far from yours, John, I would say. You know, you, you do get the early prologue, and you 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 just see the the husband and wife, you know, come in, and she's you know he's killed, and she's taken off to be sacrificed. So you kind of get that that initial thing. 
<laughs> but how many years passes from that point to the modern day? Are we are we ever told? Mm, I don't remember. I mean, there's uh, got to at least be a few hundred, right? Yeah, I would imagine. Well, based on the fact that the cloning style is the the Templars back when they were originally around, I would imagine that this easily places it like maybe three or four hundred years. Yeah. And so, I mean, so I think, see, when, you know, and we've already done it, we've compared it to Insmith. And the thing with Insmith, though, is, you know, they had sold themselves out, you know, as well. But the, the effect of that selling out, I mean, it is so much more, um, I, I mean, uh, I mean, they're basically half fish people walking around this, you know, half empty sea village. And you don't, you know, you don't really see the effects, I, I guess, as fully as you ought to on what this town would really be like had they been living under hundreds and hundreds of years of this, you know, this ongoing threat. And I think the thing that undermines it the most, I think, is how easily they just, towards the end, they just get up as a town and go, well, get the heck out of here then. <laughs> and, and, they yeah. just leave, and they just leave. So, I mean... Way more. See, I I see I see the the Dagon God Fish Idol whatever is 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 a source of power and eternal life. And if that comes, you know, crashing to Earth, then so goes you know the Templars. I guess with it, I I have an easier time with that than I do with well, if if the whole town just decided to just get up and hightail it for. You know, and steal their the doctor and his wife's car at it, and <laughs> hightail high for the mountains to get you know to get away from the wrath of the Templars. Well, a a why didn't you ever do this before? And b I mean, don't we already have uh, a precedent in earlier films that the Templars would have just chased them down anyways? Mm-hmm. But if it's also, not for the destruction of the Dagon. Well, the that. other thing too is that. For one, they don't know that the sacrifice hasn't worked, so there's no reason for them to abandon the village. Because remember, they left her, and they, you know, they they sac- they offer the sacrifice up, and then they just leave her there. They don't know that he's come back and saved her, so there's no real reason for them to actually leave in the. Well, no, they know they're, he's coming down the trail, and they're going up, and once they see him going in that direction, that's they start hightailing it right then. And that's why they steal their car to abandon them, to leave them there. I never remember them noticing because he remember he's why he's running through the the sea. He's he takes her back through the sea. They don't know cause they don't know that he's taken her. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember them actually uh, finding out till later. Uh, yeah, it seems like they get surprised. Yeah, they don't know that. He's safe because remember he takes her through the he takes her through the rocks and they escape out to sea because right, they right right. But then the next thing we see is that we see them wandering through the village grabbing their things. We don't see the villagers actually watch the rescue. I think they just assume he's going to intervene and it's going to cause havoc for them. Mm. I mean, they steal their car, so I mean they they, they leave them there. <laughs> 
to you know face the wrath of uh, the uh, the Templars, knowing you know, or at least you know, un- understandingly what they're going to do to the town. But how quick they get up and just fly out of the town. I, if anything, that sort of undermines. I I just wish. I wish the townspeople, because I mean, they are pretty. I think that with the idiot, the the town idiot, he he just won't shut up. And so he like he's he's not afraid to tell the doctor, oh, you know, that one girl, she lived there, she lived there, and that was like the last straw, you know, on the back is you know, they're sort of in that protecting mode of you know, we don't need any of this fouled up these seven nights, you know, we need to get through this and. I I, do, I find it a little um, I, I a little unnerving how you know they just come up to the door and 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 you know there's a mob a small mob of them and and they just automatically expect you know that a you're going to hand over the person and they're just going to walk the person down and and there's something about that mob mentality that's a little bit unnerving I just think it could have been a fuller effect. Of it, especially with them having gone through this for what almost three, four, maybe five hundred years, mm. it doesn't seem like a town that's really been put to the limit of that. But still, you know, it works. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Anybody have any? Other final thoughts they want to bring up? No, I'm good. Nah. All right. I've, I've a th- I have one so, thought, but it's kind of like a question, Dan. Okay, go ahead. Anyone, anyone have anyone have a problem with the seagull effect? The seagulls flying at night, screaming up a storm. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I when I was revisiting the first film. I thought I saw an interesting, uh, a little bit of uh, imaginative foreshadowing. Maybe you know that the when you're in the morgue with that weirdo, uh, mm-hmm. he's he's messed with the frog. He's got that bird in the cage, just as mm-hmm. Virginia is is resurrecting. That bird is going absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was kind of interesting. I'm like, huh? And I started thinking about seagulls, and and uh, the seagulls are known to go crazy when. They're faced with, uh, you know, a threat, you know, to their mm-hmm. colony or whatever. And I just thought that was kind of interesting. That's kind of cool, yeah. I love the weirdo on the morgue. Uh, he's my, he might be my favorite character. <laughs> he's awesome. He is. <laughs> he's like Paul Nash's brother or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay, uh, yeah, once again, any other final thoughts or comments? No. 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 Alright, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, I'll get started with this because I don't think I've gone first with my ratings yet. For this one, I'm going to give this an 8. Um, I do find a few of the issues a little, you know, a little much. I don't like, like I said, I don't like the ending. I don't like a lot of the, you know, writing and stuff like this, but I do, you know, appreciate and enjoy the, you know, return to land, so to speak. I do like a lot of the way that the Templars are treated here. I do enjoy the stalking and chasing and the slow motion stuff and all that. 
I'm probably going to go maybe a seven on rewatchability. I do think that there's probably, you know, I, you know, a few of these issues may come up and maybe stop somebody from watching this one. So I'm going to give this a seven on uh, rewatchability, but I'm still going to say this is a total. So uh, let's go to you, Rob. All right. Well, I am definitely, as much as I I personally love this film, I am not going to put it over the first film. Um, but I do think it's it's the most polished. It is the most smooth running. I don't really have any real major issues with it, so I'm I'm good with an eight eight point five. As far as rewatchability, it is easily the one that I don't know. I dig it. I just dig it. So I I'm a ten ten out of ten. I absolutely just love watching this movie, and absolute buy for me. All right. Also, uh, I'm gonna give it a seven overall. It's not a bad movie. Uh, ten uh, out of ten buy, most definitely. And rewatch, probably a six, six out of ten. All right, and Glenn, let's go with you. Yeah, I'm gonna go kind of with like a a dual rating, as like a movie itself. Just just on its own, it's like as a standalone movie, it's like a seven out of ten. As an entry in the Blind Dead series, it's a four out of ten. Mm. Yeah. Um, rewatchability, um, you know what? It, it's up there, so I'll give it like a, a seven. And it's a buy because you know the completest in me couldn't say no to it. <laughs> and uh, like I said, as a standalone flick, it's not bad. Yeah, especially like a Lovecraftian type standalone flick, but I find as a part of the series, it falls short. All right, so uh, with that, let's go to Will's ratings for this. He actually wasn't that far off. He's still the lowest. <laughs> um, overall, yeah, he gave this a five. <laughs> Oof. But. But this is the most surprising. On rewatch, he gives it a ten. Wow. I wonder why. I wonder what. I wish he was here to. I know. I, yeah. I want to hear this. <laughs> and yeah, he gives us another buy as well. Nice. Wow. Well, yeah. I wonder what it is about it that he he likes. I wonder if if me and him would agree on what what's enjoyable about it. I I don't know. I, yeah, those are some really weird rankings. <laughs> uh, yes, but uh, that uh, concludes our today's show. So uh, thank you guys for uh, joining in and uh, being here with us. Mm-hmm. All right. Hells yeah. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, if you guys have anything to share, go ahead and... Uh, Get them out there for uh, people to follow you. Okay. Uh, you can follow me right here on uh, Graveyard Shit Podcast, as well as my YouTube channel, BDG Reviews, and I'm the Monday host on Body Bags. All right, Rob? Uh, two biggest places are uh, my YouTube channel, DHS82 Apostrophe, 
um, high cap there and uh, body bags. I'm the Wednesday uh, host, and every so often I get the privilege of being with you guys. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, and they black and white nice commentaries that uh, we do every so often. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, and uh, Alfonso, anything you want to promote and share for your uh, people to listen? No, I'm not really on anything. Uh, just uh, I'm, you usually catch me creeping on the Facebook group page. That's about it. All right. So uh, for me, yeah, you can usually find me on uh, weekly with uh, No More Room in Hell presents Fresh Cuts. Uh, depending on how quickly this is released, um, the upcoming episode is going to be um, the Wrong Turn, which is going to be the, uh, we're going to record that on uh, the Monday. It's going to be the one that we're going to record next. So use that for a uh, timeline on how quickly the edited editing on this one goes. Mm. Um, you can also hear me on uh, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, which is a a giant monster podcast. Uh, we're kind of just in the middle of uh, sorting out a uh, series of issues with our host trying to get our schedules time timeline coordinated so we can uh, get a new episode out. But uh, things are looking good. We should be able to get something out sooner rather than later. So uh, uh, keep an eye out for that. And finally, my uh, blog online. I'm right in the right about to drop a series of interviews for uh, Women in Horror Month, which should come out to around 140 separate interviews. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can find that online at dawnshorrorworld.blogspot.com. So, yeah, I'm uh, going to be pretty busy pumping that stuff out. Uh, don't know how the hell I'm going to get 140 in on the month. Month, but we'll see. <laughs> but uh, yeah, other than that, um, you know, once again, just like to wish Will the best and hope everything takes care of. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Farewell and adieu to you, fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu, you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs>